VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, June the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's go. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue on the air, 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Well, I hope it's nice where you are listening from this morning, but let's go. This week is the Canadian Open Golf Tournament. So one of the most prestigious events on the calendar. Get a load of this. So it's been competed for since 1904. Only World War I, World War II, and a couple of COVID years have kept the Canadian Open from being played. It's the third oldest tournament on tour, followed only behind the British Open and the U.S. Open. Pretty cool stuff. So, of course, it's organized by Golf Canada. They used to be called the Royal Montreal Golf Club, founded in 1873, which makes it the oldest golf club in North America. There hasn't been a Canadian winner since 1954, Pat Fletcher. In the following year, Arnold Palmer won it. So Jack Nicklaus, of course, one of the greatest players of all time, he says that the most prestigious event he didn't have an opportunity to win was the Canadian Open. He was a runner-up seven times, and some of the who's who have won it. The last two times have been won by Rory McIlroy, uh, major champion Dustin Johnson, Jason Day, major champion. All the way down the list, we find some other Jim Furyk, Vijay Singh, Tiger Woods in 2000, with one of the greatest golf shots I've ever seen hit. Uh, let's see who we else got on this. Marco Mayer, of course, Nick Price, Greg Norman. Uh, who else we got here on the list? Carter Strange, two-time U.S. Open champion. Uh, Lee Trevino won it three times, and of course, Arnold Palmer, as I mentioned. So, Tom Weisskopf won the U- Canadian Open. But this year, for the second year in a row, the focus on the golf tournament has been fractured. Because last year, when it was being played, it was going up against the Saudi-funded Live Golf Tour and their uh, inaugural event in London. And now, out of nowhere, I suppose, yesterday, there was an announcement that what was once a bitter rivalry for just a year between the PGA Tour and the Saudi-funded Live Golf Tour, now they're going to merge. And so that's the focus in the world of golf, not the actual tournament itself. I feel bad for the Canadian Open, and I also kind of feel bad for the golfers who didn't take the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars by the Saudis to play on the uh, Live Tour, but it looks like there's going to be some sort of merge on that front, but one of the most prestigious tournaments in the world now gets to be all about this merge. Anyway, a couple of quick sport, no, sport notes as we ease into it today. It was on this date, 1994, that Ricky Henderson stole his 1100th base. They don't steal bases like this anymore. Ricky has the most stolen bases in a major league career in the modern day, 1,406. No one else has 1,000. Lou Brock is second on the list with 19, or pardon me, 938. And on this date in 2009, great Swiss uh, tennis player Roger Federer, my favorite of all time, became the sixth man in history to win the career Grand Slam, tied Pete Sampras for 14 slams. There's now eight people who have won the career Grand Slam. So after Federer, of course, Nadal and Djokovic had completed it. So anyway, let's go. All right. Cautious optimism for the folks in and around St. Lawrence. Looks like Canada Floor Spa has been sold. So we've had a few fits and starts on this front, but now the Supreme Court has gone ahead and approved this pending sale. We don't know which company is buying it, nor do we know for how much. When the plant was shuttered there a few years ago, there was upwards of 280 people working there, so one of the largest private sector employers on the Buren Peninsula. So I'm sure many people who maybe have remained in the area, maybe looking to go back to their former job at the Flores Bar Mine, will be quite pleased by this. We're going to see, by the end of the week, a formalized arrangement. 
We know that there's a big load of creditors secured and non, so Canada Forest Buyer owed some $104 million. Inside the world of uh, secured creditors, somewhere, let's see if I can get the number here, $95 million in secured creditors, around $20 million for provincial government. It was $17 million, but then they injected some 6.5, which apparently they will recoup in full, just trying to keep the mine in some sort of warm idle so that it was attractive for someone who may indeed want to purchase it. But they also go on to say, no real numbers uh, firmly understood, but even the, the secured creditors are going to take a substantial loss. So bad news for them, good news for people on the boot who may indeed get a job there, but the unsecured creditors becomes a huge problem. So many of these will be small, medium-sized businesses in different parts of the province, including on the Buren Peninsula, who are probably going to get absolutely nothing. Not a penny. Floor spars pretty widely used. Now, there's problems with infrastructure and transportation that have dogged that particular facility, but it's used for things like in products like aluminum, gasoline, insulating foams, refrigerant, steel, uranium fuel. So floor spire is still in demand, but that does need some TLC, that particular site in St. Lawrence, but I guess that is probably pretty good news. Okay, we've thrown this out there. I don't know what anybody thinks about it. I'm sure if you're a harvester or a plant worker, you're all in for Greg Pretty, the president of the FFAW, who's in Ottawa today, trying to secure some $100 million, is the number we hear, in compensation for those impacted by the six-week tie-up or the six-week standoff. When speaking with Minister Goody Hutchings yesterday, she didn't say out loud no, but she certainly intimated that this is a big ask. You know, if there's monies that have flowed to farmers, for instance, floods and droughts and the like, vastly different than the conscientious decision to not fish for the snow crab because there was concerns with the price that was set and the percentage of market value going to the processors versus the harvesters. So what do you make of that particular ask? I would be surprised if there's going to be any monies flowing that way. But then to highlight the issue that harvesters have long been talking about is that they're basically at the mercy of the processors, right? Now, the processors don't directly set the price. They submit one, so does the union, and the price setting panel picks one or the other. No compromise, no gray area, no coming up the middle. But when it comes to the mercy, the harvesters at the mercy of the processors, things like trip limits. And then you'll see this it really gets a, sh a bright light shone on it when you look at what Rick Crane and Crane's legacy has done. He's a fish, uh, fisherman and business owner in Cox's Cove. So he's gone ahead and built his own lobster holding tank. He can hold 48,000 pounds of lobster in an effort to control the sale, the sale process. So he will now sell to who he wants, including the local processors, when he thinks the price is right. So to take on a half a million dollar initiative to control your own fate, to get the biggest bang for your effort, to get the biggest profit from going for the lobster, that he's taken this upon himself. Good for him. And hopefully it works out famously. And it looks like already is showing some bright signs, given the fact he's got a big order from a Boston buyer. And apparently you can keep the lobsters with the way he's uh, set up his tank with the constant flow of fresh water, the removal of the waste coming from the lobster. He can probably keep them in the tank up to six months. So good on Rick Crane. But that really does highlight just how difficult it is for the harvester to maximize profit for the raw material. So if Rick Crane is listening this morning, maybe he'd like to give us a shout and fill us in as to how and why and what's going on with that massive investment, but it looks like it's going to pay off for him. Someone did ask me overnight in uh, email, and we've been talking about a variety of topics, of course, and that's the nature of the beast on this program. There was a stretch there where it was really heavily dominated with healthcare, and rightfully so. 
it's obviously one of the number one concerns that people will have. If you're lucky enough to be healthy and lucky enough to have a family doctor, lucky enough to be living by a hospital and an emergency room that hasn't seen any closures or concerns, lucky enough to be living close by an ambulance service without the lengthy wait times. But for many people in the province, that's simply not the case. So let's talk about a rally with some 200 people uh, in attendance regarding the Bayvert uh, Healthcare Center. So it covers some 23 communities, and they've had a huge problem. They haven't had a doctor there since 2021, a full-time doctor. So here's some numbers for you to consider. And this is a lady called named Jennifer Cran. She lives near the health care center. She says the hospital was closed for 26 and a half out of 35 days between May the 5th and June the 8th. The hospital was also closed for 60 days in 2022. That's about 16% of the calendar year. Then going on to say, you know, if you have an emergency and you can't get access to health care in Bay Vert at their health care center, for her, it's 177 kilometers to Grand Falls, Windsor. She has a son that had a severe allergic reaction, and she rightfully points out every minute counts. So, and it's not just in Bay Vert, there's many parts of the province that have that same question about the future for access equitable access to healthcare where they are. We've seen emergency rooms be uh, transitioned or rebranded into urgent care centers, and there's a vast difference between the two. So for folks on the Bayboard Peninsula, even if you weren't one of these somewhere around 200 people in attendance at this particular protest or rally, absolutely have time for you here on the program this morning. But of course, it's not unique to Bayvert. We've been talking about it in various centers, and we should and will keep the healthcare conversation going for every every obvious reasons. Sticking with healthcare for a second. So the registered nurses union is in contract negotiations with the provincial government and if you listen to Yvette Coffey, the president of the registered nurses union, she says it's all about retention, retention, retention. Pointing again to the fact there's some 700 nursing vacancies currently in the province. There's another somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 nurses nearing retirement age. They point to the issue on the floor. And you can only imagine what this means to registered nurse, working, say, for instance, for the Newfoundland Health Services, working right alongside a nurse who's working in one of these agencies. They're able to pick and choose when they work, making upwards of double or triple the wage of their colleagues with the same level of training, with the same uniform, the same duties. So I don't know how we address that particular issue, and I don't begrudge an agency nurse if someone said to me, come work for me to do the same thing albeit with some control for your work-life balance, albeit with double or triple the pay, of course people are saying yes to that. This sounds ideal. But the retention, retention, retention. And uh, I will give Miss Coffey a shout-out here. She's been given a very special award at the Canadian Federation or Federal yeah, Federation of Nurses Unions Biennial Convention, which is held in PEI this year. She's been presented with the Bread and Roses Award for leading her membership what's been called two of the most tumultuous years in the history of Canadian nursing profession. Specifically talking about the fact that she's led the initiative to create a 25% increase in seats at the provincial schools of nursing and of course her involvement in what is now the establishment of a deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals. Congratulations to Ms. Coffey. But the nursing conversation in general is certainly not going away. As is every other issue inside of healthcare. Again, if you want to revisit things like the waiting and continue to wait for what the consultant brought in by the provincial government to talk about or try to create a, pl a plan to consolidate some 60 different ambulance contracts, what that's going to look like, when it's going to come to pass, let's do it. Uh, Dave, I just want to confirm, is Mr. Dix coming on this morning? Okay. 
I spoke with Eugene Manning yesterday, of course, one of three people uh, who want to be the next leader of the uh, Progressive Conservative Party. And his issue, issue yesterday was the whole story surrounding tampered eye medication. Ken Dix is a pharmacist out in Central with decades in the business, and he's the person speaking to or quoted more often than not in the stories regarding the tampering of Ilea and Lucentis. He first became concerned back in 2015, and it's a long, tangly, strange old story as to how we got there, and questions about how this actually came to pass with the tampering of what is a single-dose vial of this uh, drug that's used to treat age-related macular degeneration. Millions of Canadians suffer from this, the leading cause of irreversible vision loss. And when the vials were tampered with and the overflow was used as opposed to a single dose, it came with all sorts of potential complications. You know, it could be contaminated, lead to worsening effects. There's even questions as to whether or not using the overflow even worked, period. So Mr. Dix is going to join us here this morning. So if you'd like to put some questions in my mind for Mr. Dix, we're happy to do that on Twitter, email, or whatever the case may be. All right, because I'm looking forward to that, uh, that conversation. Also, we've been talking about things, you know, where the never-ending, clever, relentless scammers out there. I want to do this on behalf of Leo Bunnell. Leo's been on the show in the past, the former bank manager. He's been holding sessions to talk about seniors' information regarding these frauds and scams and phone calls and emails and texts that continue to flow day after day. If we get one group, there's another coming right behind them. And they do indeed bilk Canadians of tens of millions of dollars a year. He's got an information session coming up on the 17th of June from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Lions Club in Bonavista. That's going to be very helpful. There's also a, a webinar being hosted by Seniors NL coming up on the 8th of June from 9.30 a.m. to 11 to talk about the same thing. Mr. Bunnell will be the lead presenter at both. So if you're in the region in Bonavista on the 17th of June, this might be very helpful. And, of course, it's a conversation that continues inside our families and social circles because we know that they're out there. We know that they've upped their game to really mimic what looks very, very real and sounds very, very real, but more often than not, it is absolutely a scam. So Mr. Bunnell is also welcome back on the show to talk about that. And there's so much going on. I'll leave it up to you what's of importance to bring it to the airwaves, and please do exactly that this morning. We're also on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're joining us live on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we are going to have Mr. Dix on the program to talk about that tampered eye medication very, very shortly. But let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. Morning to you. Yeah, I want to comment on your uh, have a little debate about the, the golf issue that you brought up uh, Okay. Like you and like everyone else, I listened to Mike Weir's press conference. He was taken by by surprise. Anyone who doesn't know who Mike Weir is, Mike was the only person ever Canadian history to win the Masters Golf Championship uh, many years ago. And uh, yeah, it was very interesting uh, in his comments. He said, "I I didn't know anything about it." And then he's the president's club. Sorry, he's the president's uh, uh, cup uh, captain this year for the European and Canadian. Uh, group. Well, uh, no, for the internationals, very, not the Europeans, because they're sorry, Ryder the, Cuppers, right? Sorry, yeah. the internationals. Yes, you're right, Patty. Um, anyway, so I listened to his press conference, and he was just asked a question, and he didn't have much to say, except, yeah, I probably agree that the best players in the world should be playing at the best tournaments in the world, and he looked forward to seeing a lot of them in Canada uh, to play this week. Uh, the interesting thing, though, most people don't realize is that, and, and of course, you mentioned Vijay Singh way back when over 20 years ago, I guess now, 
when uh, VJ made that unbelievable shot uh, on the 18th hole in the Canadian Open to beat Mike, uh, Mike Weir by one shot. And Mike Weir talked about that in his interview, uh, and it was just tremendous. Everyone in Canada, even if you didn't play golf, you're sitting on your couch and, and your heart sunk, and yet you're so happy to see such a great shot made. But, but Mike gave it such a good, a good run back then. It was unbelievable. Yeah, he won the Masters in 2003, beat Len Matisse in a playoff. Right. I, uh, you know, I feel bad for the Canadian Open and their organizers. Two years in a row where it's shadowed by something else. And, you know, I don't think yeah. you're going to hear a lot from the players because they were all caught off guard. The vast majority of them either heard about it word of mouth or on social media, like on Twitter. So there's something weird going on here. We don't even know exactly what this merge means. But I guarantee no. the players that took the live offer and pocketed tens of millions of dollars now simply get to go right back to work with all of that bank in their pocket. They come out the massive winners here. Yeah, I mean, you know, like it's disgusting. And I agree with you on the whole Saudi Arabia thing where, you know, like, like what, they, uh, what they did with the, uh, with the journalists, the Soji, and, and all the rest of the stuff that they do. And yet the PGA Tour, supposedly a, a, a very upstanding and, you know, caring group you know they always come out about all their caring about everything and yet they just wipe that aside and let the saudis just do whatever they always do which is buy it with their money it's just terrible but on the good side this week we have the best crowd of canadians ever in the canadian open Corey connors was in the final group at the pga championship a few weeks ago i mean he had a chance of winning that so this year i think is their best year ever and maybe this is not a bad thing to have that thing going on it might distract some of the other players and, may, and maybe we'll do something about it. But I think we're going to have a winner this year from Canada. I encourage everyone who's got any kind of interest you know, in op or that kind of thing to, ha- to just have a look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's a prestigious event. Uh, you know, to say the least, it hasn't been won by Canadians since 1954. So you've got the Corey Connors and Adam Hadwin and uh, Mackenzie yeah. Hughes and Taylor Pendrith. There's a long list of really top-flight Canadian players now, many of which will get to play on Mike Weir's President's Cup team. So let's see what becomes yeah. of it. But anyway, it's a strange and, story. And don't forget this. Mike Weir has been nailing it on the Seniors Tour. They call it the Champions Tour. He's been playing fabulous golf. He, his putter has been letting him down. And he, and he announced yesterday his putting's really good. Like, he's really happy with, with where it's come. And he loves Glen Abbey. It's his favorite golf course in Canada to play. So you never know. He might be in the hunt. Yeah, well, I, 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 I don't know about that. But, I mean, I'm a big Mike Weir <laughs> fan. Master champion, eight times a winner on the PGA Tour. And not to be in the world of uh, correcting you, but they're playing at the Oakville uh, golf and country club this time around i think it's the seventh time they've hosted it glenn abbey's been uh, hosted it 30 times it's only been played outside of ontario nine times since 1904 so maybe spreading it around a little bit more and of course royal montreal is a go-to golf course for them as well good to have you on sean i appreciate the time thank you take care of yourself you okay. too bye-bye. bye-bye yeah okay let's keep going uh let's go to line number four and say good morning to ken dix who's a pharmacist out in central newfoundland to talk tampered eye medication good morning ken you're on the air Hey, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I have to admit, this story is as confusing as it is troubling. Take us back to 2015 when you first were made aware of or were concerned with the fact that there may indeed be splitting doses out of what is supposed to be a single-dose vial. Uh, Yeah, I can do that. I was uh, part of a task force, an LCAMP task force, um, to, to craft up regulations around this very thing. So 
through that experience, I guess I was primed for what I was seeing in the marketplace with respect to eye drops. And I put my pharmacy board on notice to say, you need to watch for this. This is a distinct possibility that these products will emerge in the marketplace and you need to be vigilant. And that's kind of where I left it. Um, and then it, you, you can, you know, you can just tell when something's wrong, your spider senses are tingling, nothing seems to add up. Uh, eye drops are no different than insulin in the sense that the distribution should not look any different. But nobody was dispensing these eye injections. So uh, where were they coming from? There was plenty of eye injections being performed but no prescription records were generated to match those injections. So this was all about, you know, you became concerned and identified the issue that the dispensing records did not match the number of procedures. It's as simple as that, right, Ken? That's that's the start of it, yeah. Okay. Here's a question. So the thought is that this was all taking place at a pharmacy in Ontario called Advanced Care Specialty. So my question would be, and some of these might be really kind of uh, base questions, but... Does the provincial government order these products? Is it ordered by an oversight board or, pardon me, an umbrella advocacy group? Is it ordered by individual pharmacists? How does the drug make its way to the province? Well, to be clear, this is this is a distribution uh, scheme that runs outside the normal practice of pharmacy. So, it's no, it's not pharmacists who are generating the prescriptions and whether they would even be categorized. Correctly categorized as prescriptions is, uh, you know, something to be debated. It's okay. probably purchase orders. Who's actually doing the ordering could be determined with sufficient investigation, which is part of the problem. The regulatory authorities have, have abdicated their responsibility, and probably for good reasons because they are aware of. It. So, you know. It, Normally, what would happen is a patient would receive a prescription, and the, pres- the, pharma- the pharmacist would receive that prescription. The patient would go to the pharmacist of, the, of their choice and have the prescription filled. The f- on, on the back side of the counter, the pharmacist would always acquire that medication through normal, legitimate distribution chain that they use for everything else. And, you know, through those checks and balances, that patient ends up with a lif- authentic, legitimate product. But that's not what happened here. Although that distribution chain was circumvented, and somehow orders were pro- we know product was produced because we've got a Health Canada inspection that, that says how it was done. We've got uh, uh, advanced pharmaceutical uh, basically has their manifesto uh, in the RFP document they submitted to government which says that they do dose split. They give you the ratio. They tell you the price. They tell you the product that uh, the syringes that the product goes into. They give you the number of uh, doses that they've dispensed in across Canada. So it, it's absolutely occurring. Bold, to say the very least, to put in writing what actually contravenes Section 8 of Canada's Food and Drugs Act regarding adulterating uh, a product here. So this is really quite something. So let's talk about June 2015 when the province was going to the market trying to look for ways to save money in ordering drugs, whether it be bulk buys or what have you. So my, when I read between these lines and I looked at some of the access to information, which is basically a lot of black lines, is 
they knew exactly what was going on. So whether it be all the way to the level of Health Canada, the government of Newfoundland Labrador, the regulatory agencies, the Premier, the Minister of Health Community Services, is your assertion that everybody knew this was happening, but in an effort to save the almighty dollar, they just turned a blind eye? Well, uh, effectively, but... Um you know, I don't know that they saved any money because if you're if you're putting in a product that has that lacks product integrity, what are you saving? Right. You may have product that doesn't work. You may have product that causes contamination. There are reasons that we want you know as high a product integrity, of high confidence factor, in a product prior to administration. There's very good reasons for that, and if you take a a product, a single-dose syringe that's supposed to be co- uh, stored at 2 to 8 degrees, and you take that in Ontario and you pop the top off it and you pull out three or four syringes and you recap those syringes and you throw away the vial and you put those syringes in, in poly bags, you've breached the 2 to 8 degrees, unless it's done in a refrigerator, and it's not. Uh, you, you've agitated the product, which you're not supposed to do. You put it in an unapproved con- drug-containing device, which leaches silicone. You've you've uh, completely de- devalued the product uh, parameters, the product integrity parameters, including expiry date. So, you know, it's a big deal. And then those bags to make the story even more perverse, those bags end up being shipped into uh, Newfoundland as if those things never happened. All those bags are misrepresented as authentic, legitimate, manufactured, original product and are billed as such. To take a quote in the news story... Minister said in the house. Yeah, remarkable. Just to take a quote from you in the news story that I read. You said, if I or any pharmacist in Canada received insulin in a poly bag marked insulin without any product parameters on the label, would they dispense that? No, no chance. They'd have no idea what they were getting. That said, how did these tampered drugs make it into the hands of the patients? The, the, the supply chain needs to be, you know, it, it needs to be exposed. Um, there are certain things that we don't know. But we do know we do know where it left, and we do know that it ended up in somebody's eye. Let's talk about the uh, issues surrounding the fact that it did end up in somebody's eye. What do we know about whether or not it even worked when those doses were split? Well, <clears throat> I, I, <clears throat> I, uh, people get concerned. People get caught up in the idea of you know uh, contamination. Contamination is a very real concern. And even out in BC, there was an ophthalmologist who who coined the phrase anti-VEGF contamination. And it is the silicone that reaches, leaches out of these disposable syringes, which, which are never designed to hold a drug for so long. So the silicone leaches into the drug, and that silicone goes into your eye. And we're all familiar with like, breast implants going off in people's eye. We know, or sorry, in breast implants eruption, and that causes inflammation. We know the difficulties of those things. That, that's been in the news. Well, if you put it, silicone in the eye, you still have the, con- the contamination. You still have the inflammation. And 
the, the consequence would be something called anti-VEGF glaucoma. So the idea that contamination isn't a risk is false, right? The, the other uh, maybe a little bit obscure uh, idea in this, but maybe more significant, is the idea that the potency and the efficacy of these drugs would go down by the mishandling of them. So if you have a, a fragile drug, these are fragile drugs, uh, you know, you keep them cold, you don't move them around too much, you don't expose them to light, to increase the chances of when they are administered, you get full e- efficacy. You get what you paid for. You get, you get the product that was studied for the benefit that you are entitled to. Well, aggregation is something that if anybody's made gravy and had clumpy gravy, that's kind of ag- aggregation. If you put any any energy into a molecule like this, there's several things that happen. The energy doesn't go away. It manifests in, inside the product. So you can have uh, molecules that end up becoming attached to each other. So think of it this way, Patty. If, if you're out in a boat and there, there's 50 fishing lines in the water, every one of those lines is looking for a fish. Well, if you've got 50, Half of those, 25 of them, end up being hooked up in each other. What's the potency of that boat? It's half. And that happens in, in, in chemistry ways, too. Molecules that, are, are, that need to be alone to find the receptor to affect the, 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 the therapeutics need to be alone. If, if they're hooked up to each other, they're unavailable. So all of a sudden, the product goes from 100% potency to 50% potency. And we have no idea if it's 50%, 90%, 10%, or 0%, because the the product storage and handling really matters. The the amount of light that the product gets really matters. And the idea of of, uh, storage and product handling, really, everybody got an education in that through COVID because we had the military flying COVID injections around, super-cooled, um, you know, coolers. This so is that, very, that's, not, that's, not a, that's not an unfamiliar theme anymore. Of course. This is a very basic question, but... So if it's intended to be single-dose only, no-dose splitting, what's the logic behind creating a vial that has more than one dose? You know, maybe if it had 10% tolerance or 10% leeway so that you absolutely got a full dose. So what's the logic behind having four or five doses of what's supposed to be a single use? This is an excellent question, but an easy one to answer. Okay. The, volume, the volume in, in that needs to end up in the injection is a 0.05 dose of a mil. That's equivalent to one drop. You cannot physically get one drop out of a vial. Oh. You have to take. You have to have more volume, so you can actually retrieve the, the that one dose. Because such a small, the total dose vial, the total do, volume in the vial is only a quarter of a mil, which is five drops. If you tried to withdraw five drops. You know, you wouldn't be able to do it because some of it's sticking to the side, some of it gets stuck up in the plunger. You know, think of it this way. It's the ketchup at the end of the ketchup bottle. You, you, you know, you need so much product in there to be able to get 
what you need you need to retrieve. You're never going to get it all. So the, that's the amount that the that, you know that the manufacturers aren't they're using through their own studies to say this is the amount that I can put I have to put in here, so that at the time of administration, the, the healthcare professional can reliably get that one dose. So that's why I say it becomes part of the packaging. It's part of the delivery system. There's also a mention of another gentleman in this story, Keith Morgan, who's a lawyer who specializes in pharmaceutical law. Then there's the reference to the contacted Health Canada to come seize the product and to test it. They took it and destroyed it and say yeah, there's no evidence of any regulatory offense. In 2022, they went on to say that there's uh, no evidence of noncompliance, even though it quite clearly has been noncompliance as part of this Food and Drug Act. So do you have any way to understand Health Canada's stance on this, given the fact well, uh, that it's pretty well documented that this was happening? Well, that's not what they said in, I think it's 2017, I think. I mean, they said the complete opposite. They said, we won't stand for this. They said that uh, uh, they would support any regulatory uh, regulatory body in the province who took action against pharmacists who are, are behaving this way. And at that time, there was kind of a, you know, an academic argument, which had very real theoretical applications, uh, practical applications. But uh, irrespective of where, where this falls, uh, they said it's, it, propose, it poses a risk to the patient, and we will treat it that way. We will treat it as a, a risk to, uh, to Canadians. That's what they said. And then change their and tune. that's the truth, yes. Before we run out of time, Ken, so what's your advice to uh, patients who are going to the pharmacy to get whatever prescribed drug, even the concept of asking for a pharmacy record? Why and what does that show? Well, the, uh, the, the, the significance is it's, the pharmacy record is going to show a legitimate product has been dispensed. We know that. But that may not be what occurred. The, the the tell will be in where did the product come from. So if you go to your pharmacist and ask him for medical records, again, I've been at this a long time, 99% of pharmacists are ethical. They do the right thing. They want to look after your patients. I know that. I've been in this writing for a long time. If a patient goes in, that pharmacist should not be offended because that pharmacist has nothing to do with this this activity that is happening around them. What that, what that patient needs to know is what's on their, their network, uh, the, the, the pharmacy record on their network of everything they got dispensed. There's two scenarios that are going to happen. The pharmacy record is going to show, or potentially show, a pharmacist they don't know or a pharmacy that they never dealt with, but a product record will exist as if it was dispensed, but they don't know them. So how to, that's a red flag. That, that patient should phone that pharmacist and say, what did you give me? I've never spoken to you. Or probably a worst-case scenario is it's not going to be there at all. If it's not there at all, it's highly likely that those, those injections were dispensed out of province because there's, there's some... There, there's an illogical weakness in the, the medical in the pharmacy uh, network. It will not record out of province dispensing. So.
So we'll have patients in this province who have had rec- uh, have interjections time and time again. There is no record. There ought to be a record, certainly since 2017. Everything that they had done, every procedure that required a medication in Newfoundland deserves a record. Where's, where's the record for my injection? Keeping in mind, there is no good excuse not to have that record because the, the, the pharmacist you are looking at can provide that product. No different than insulin. It's a remarkable story. Ken, I really appreciate uh, you making time for us to help break it down in bite-sized morsels. Yes, no, thanks for the call, Patty. I'm sorry I couldn't do it earlier, but uh, glad we got done today. I'm happy you did. Thanks, Ken. Okay, Stay in thank touch. you. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. I mean, what? You know, it really sounds and looks like the people responsible for oversight and at the government level knew exactly what was going on. Advanced Care Pharmacy, in their submission in response to the 2015 RFP, said, here's what we do, including splitting the, the, splitting the doses. Wow. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Alex, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Hi, thanks. Well, the reason I'm calling today is I've been keeping up to date with the the body safety program that's trying to be implemented in the school district. Um, and you know, you know, I, I I'm really passionate about this. Uh, I myself am a survivor of child exploitation, um, and I've been listening. And I, I was listening yesterday about uh, Tom Davis was calling in uh, about him and his wife Bevmore Davis. They were trying to. They're the ones spearheading the program, trying to get it. Uh, trying to get it into the, trying to get the program greenlit, and <clears throat> I, I of course, like I said, I, I'm a survivor of my, I'm a survivor of it myself. But I don't think you need to have gone through abuse to know that. Well, one, it's mind-boggling that we don't have a body safety program in Newfoundland in general. It's it's mind-boggling that. We're the only province not to have a body safety program in Canada, but more importantly, it's it's in, insane that despite everything, the program hasn't been greenlit. You know, so I, you know, despite that, I, I was actually reading that the updates on BodySafetyNL.com, and I, I read that last year they had a pilot program that worked in 18 different schools in the island and. The program costs less than twenty-five thousand dollars to launch, which is, I mean, let's let's face it, it's pocket change to the school district. Despite despite all that, it's not being greenlit, and I think that's I think it's something that we should be talking about. And we're happy to do it on this program. I really don't understand the logic with just uh, launching it as a pilot in select schools, because if we're talking about body safety and recognizing the risks and what to do about them, you know, we're kind of picking and choosing which schools, which children uh, need to have that type of information. Sounds really quite bizarre to me. I don't know if this is some sort of political hangover, given the contentious issues regarding sexual education and the like inside the provinces K-12 system, but 
But that that becomes a political and a political ideology conversation. This one is not that. The body safety program is absolutely not that, not even close. But I wonder if there's been some sort of mental overlap where they're being cautious versus recognizing that it's implemented in every uh, province across the country. Uh, the results are clear. I've spoken to people who are in ministries of education in other provinces. I've, people put me onto them. And they talk about what it means, how effective it's been, and what some of the data shows. And it's pretty clear that it's helping. And if it's helping there, it should be able to help here. There's no need to launch it as a pilot because even at that stage, how do you ag- have any firm understanding of the impact that it has in select schools? Like, what do we even glean from a pilot project here? Absolutely. And by my understanding, it's the same program that schools all across the country are uh, are, are doing. And those programs are showing great results. So it's like, you know, why, why can't we have it here? And you're right. It, it's not – this isn't a political issue. This is This is something that we can all agree on that, you know, child safety is a, a very important priority. Uh especially when it comes to mental health, because, like, uh, when it comes to child abuse, of course, we both know that doesn't doesn't have to be sexual, doesn't have to be, it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be psychological. You know, what happens in childhood doesn't stay in childhood. You know, those are, those are lifelong complications that people will deal with for probably the rest of their lives. So I, I, I just, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, messed up that it's not a a permanent thing i I was listening to the to your program yesterday about tom davis and after the call uh, i had a conversation with my roommates about the program and every single one of us had a story whether personal or about someone we knew that 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 have experience with abuse right and we all talked about how a program like this if we had a program like this as kids you know, it, it's 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 silly to say, oh, what if we, you know, it, it's silly to look back in the past and say, oh, what if, what if, because that's not really necessary. But you kind of have to wonder, like, if I had this program, what would be different? You know, would I be able to have the communication skills or, or, or the words to say what was wrong? Because a lot of us, I mean, I, I find a lot of a lot of people who, in my experience, people who I've talked to who have been abused. They don't really know. They don't really have the. They didn't have the words to describe what was happening to them. Or in my case, I didn't even know what was happening to me it was wrong, right? So like, how can you how can you have that kind of conversation if you don't even know what's wrong? So if I had this program as a kid, would I be in the situation that I'm in? You know, I've, I I I think this is such an important conversation. It's an important program that I think we should all, you know, jump on. Absolutely. We're happy to keep the conversation going here because protecting, supporting children to help them navigate some very, very dangerous situations in a more effective and safe manner. Why wouldn't anybody be all in for that? I appreciate making time for the show and your patience this morning. Alex, thank you. Absolutely. And before I go, could I actually, uh, so on Body Safety NL, you can actually send uh, a a letter, a pre-written letter to uh, some of your government officials. If you go into bodysafety.com, all it takes is less than 20 seconds. Just got to put your email in, send it to a, a, a representative, and you're on your way. Thanks for your time, Alex. Thank you very much.
Thanks so much. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, went a little long with Ken Dick, so let's try to get back on track on the breaks. So it was last July that First Voice, that's the St. John's Urban Indigenous Coalition, they released their preliminary report talking about oversight of the RNC in particular. Last October, pardon me, and in October, they released their final report. Some of the final report and implementation was announced yesterday. There was a joint press conference between RNC Chief uh, Roach and uh, Justin... Justin, uh, no, Justin Campbell. He's the program director worth first voice. Justin's up right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the program director with first voice. That's Justin Campbell. Good morning, Justin. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Doing great. Now, let's start with uh, RNC Chief Pat Roach. So for the longest while, and we've been trying to get the chief on and uh, unsuccessfully for the last while, but, you know, he was pretty adamant in that there was no what they refer to as systemic racism inside the rank and file of the RNC or law enforcement in general. Sort of changed his tune yesterday with how he talked about it and it points to the fact that he says it's education that has caused him to change his tune. Yeah. What did you make? I knew you knew it was coming because you're part of this working group. But can you walk us That's through? Right, yeah. I know you can't speak for the chief, but what do you think changed his mind? What sort of specifics were put on his plate where now he says he's been educated to have a different realization of what's happening? Yeah, well, I would say what changed his mind is extensive conversations that we had as first voice with uh, the RNC, including um, Chief Roach and his senior leadership team. We talked a lot about the issues that were raised in the report you mentioned just before the break. That's building trust, restoring confidence. We documented many ways in which systemic racism exists within police forces, not just in this province, but right across the country. So we had a number of conversations over the last several months um, to talk about these issues. Sometimes they were difficult conversations, but we always felt that they were productive and worth having. So it doesn't surprise me that yesterday, um, Chief Roach said that what changed his mind was education. It also makes me think of Murray Sinclair, who chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, said education got us, or miseducation got us into the problem of systemic racism, and education is what's going to get us out of it. So there's a bunch of recommendations that were made in your final report, but now there's been the acceptance, I don't know if that's the right word, of an advisory, an Indigenous advisory committee versus actual civilian-led police oversight. I'm pretty sure I know what the difference is, but tell the the listeners exactly what the difference is. Great. So um, when we called for a civilian oversight body for policing in the province, we were talking about one that would be created by law. It would require legislative changes. It would provide high-level direction and accountability and transparency to police services within the province, and particularly the the RNC. Um, That would be um, a mandated body that the RNC would be held directly accountable to. That's not what we're talking about today, even though we remain firm that that is a recommendation that needs to be implemented Um, We're talking now about an advisory committee. It's created by the RNC. It has advisory powers only. So any advice that's brought forward as a result of discussions at that committee um, would land on uh, presumably Chief Roach's desk, and he would have to approve any changes that are being recommended. That isn't the same as a police oversight body, which would have the, the power and authority to implement changes on its own. Minister of Justice John Hogan says he's at this point only interested or wanting to look at it. He says he's not for or against civilian-led police oversight. Uh, Mm -hmm. Have you had conversations with the minister, and what do you think of his pretty much sitting on the fence on this? Yeah, so we've had conversations with the minister not recently, um, which is disappointing. 
Um, and I think the people of the province should be disappointed that um, Minister Hogan has yet to take a position on the recommendations we put forward. They're well documented. They come from a national inquiry that looked into problems with policing, um, among other things. Um, our recommendations are based directly on two of those, uh, what, the, what the National Inquiry called calls for justice. So we, we have a national body saying these are things that need to be done. We have a local organization in the province, First Voice, saying this is what it would look like in the province. We handed over this report to the Minister of Justice personally nine months ago. So they've had plenty of time to study and review the recommendations. And it's troubling that after all of that time, they still have yet to even comment publicly on what they think of the recommendations. What are the issues surrounding uh, lived experience and how that will influence any changes to the way they train RNC officers or the way they approach educating their officers? What exactly are we talking about in the changes? Yeah, so back to the advisory committee now, um, which we announced at the RNC yesterday. Um, some of the things that you mentioned are around recruitment, increasing um, cultural education for new recruits and existing police officers, reviewing policies to make sure that we are addressing systemic racism that exists within the police force. These are all recommendations that come from the MMIWG National Inquiry. So that's the work that we see the committee focusing on. Um, these are priorities that we hear from the urban indigenous community here in St. John's. We know that MMIWG calls for justice have the support of other indigenous groups in the province. So what we're saying uh, yesterday and what we've been saying for quite some time now is it's time to get to work on, on these calls for justice. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Justin, but wasn't there a number of years ago uh, an exercise undertaken by the RCMP and some independent bodies about the RCMP's interactions with minority groups, including Indigenous peoples, that didn't necessarily reflect the systemic racism that some people point to. So how have we arrived at, you know, on, once again, not speaking for the Chief, what should people know who have not been involved in these working groups, have not been involved in these conversations, about why this is important at this moment in time? Because, you know, we can talk about it as 100,000 feet above sea level and the Chief acknowledging systemic yeah. racism, but what specifically are we talking about? Is it the, the amount of Indigenous people as a percentage of the population who are incarcerated? Is it the way the interactions unfold? What are we talking about? Yeah. yeah, so it's all of those things. And just to be clear, when we talk about systemic racism, we're not talking about the opinions or attitudes of individuals. We're talking about the way that systems of power work. And what I mean is we have to take into account that police forces in this country and in this province um, were created uh, during a time when colonialism was an explicit policy of the government. Um, those policies included removing Indigenous peoples from their land, um, in, some, in some cases outright exterminating, exterminating Indigenous groups, and police forces played a central role in all of this, uh, including abducting children and taking them to residential schools where they were separated from their parents and cultures um, and forced to behave as... Um, as uh, as white people, essentially. Um, and then there's thing, other things like the 60s scoop, which yeah. is when a large numbers of Indigenous uh, children were, brought, were taken into custody, again, separated from their parents and their cultural identities. So all of this is in the background um, in the historical context. And it would be misguided to think that that history does not inform the way that these organizations continue to function today. Last one, Justin, and this is one I'm sure you've heard or read, is that there's, obviously there's a dovetail with reconciliation with this particular uh, effort that you're putting forward with your working group. People will say, 
that how can I be held to account for things that happened X number of years ago regarding whether it be residential schools or 60 scoop or what have you, and what role do I play in no. reconciliation given the fact that I played no role in the history as to how we arrived at this point? Yep. So it's a good question. Um, again, going back to the, the point of systemic racism, we're talking about the way that institutions function. We're not talking about individual attitudes. Um, even still, we have to recognize that all of us now in this province occupy what was and still is Indigenous lands. So we benefit from colonialism even right now. So it's not something that happened in the past. It's something that's ongoing. It still impacts Indigenous people who have a right uh, to this land. They have a right to self-governance. They have a right to sovereignty. So reconciliation means that we acknowledge uh, that history and the impacts that it still has on people in this province right now. And doing better to acknowledge and recognize um, and even actively affirm the rights of Indigenous peoples. That's what reconciliation would look like. Right. I was just trying to, you know, explore the dovetail and the relationship between the two, and I do understand the differences. Right. Uh, next steps before we take a break for the news. What are next steps here now, Justin? So next steps are to get the committee together. We've extended invitations to all Indigenous organizations and governments in the province to take part in this in this work to provide their insights and expertise in moving forward with essentially decolonizing the RNC and making it um, more responsive to Indigenous priorities and needs. I appreciate you making time for the program, Justin. Stay in touch. Yep. Thanks for having me, Patty. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Justin Campbell is the program director with First Voice. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the wildfire situation in the country, specifically in Quebec, and what that's meant for business and operations in Labrador, and then some bullying in schools, always a big topic. And, of course, bullying, that word has kind of lost its punch. You know, sometimes we're talking about your mother dresses you funny or your freckles or physical abuse. We'll talk with a gentleman about what his a child is enduring in school as well. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Thank you, Patty. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. There's been lots of Justins and Jordans. I got my tongue tied up a little bit here this morning. Okay. So we see the wildfires that are burning across the country. Some 413, half of which are out of control, including in Quebec, which are some devastating pictures coming from that province. What's the real-life impact in Labrador because of the fires? Well, obviously, when the first one that really started to impact us is one in Satil, uh, Quebec. Um, obviously, that uh, that actually, uh, you know, directly uh, basically burned over the railway um, that actually connects us to uh, to the port. So that one actually was, the, I guess, the start of what was affecting Labrador West. Um, that one uh, caused some damage and stuff, and now the railway link is closed until at least the uh, end of this week into next week. Um, that's our that's our lifeline for uh, for for our economic. For, thing it's all all the ore in uh, is shipped out that way but also it's our our fuel link all our um diesel bunker and uh, gasoline uh comes up that route so we're currently so we said uh, we uh you know we're cut off that way um the second one is a fire um around Manic 3 up on uh, Route 389. That's our road link into Quebec. Uh, that's where all our groceries and other economic and goods and stuff come in. And that one's burned across the highway there, causing um, delays. So it was for, uh, at some points, no traffic was let through. At other points, there was a uh, there was a safety convoy went through with essential goods. So we got cut off both on the rail side and the, uh, the road side. What kind of damage to the rail system? 
Uh, right now, like I said, uh, they're repairing it now, so thankfully that uh, the, the rain and the change in winds helped. Uh, you know, you're looking at uh, telecoms, uh, signaling, um, I think a communications tower, and also they have to do some geotechnical uh, things to make sure that the tracks and stuff are safe. Uh, how about air quality? Right now, we said uh, the winds did shift, so it was uh, for a while. It was uh, yesterday and. And the day before, we were getting a lot of wind and stuff, and we were getting some uh, smoke up this way. Uh, but the wind shifted it, so it started blowing away from us. Uh, so we uh, we only had about a day or so where it was uh, was smoky here. What about folks in your region talking about wildfire season? Because it's not me making up the numbers; it's the numbers being reported by different provinces. So there's been 2,200 and uh, 2,214 wildfires already this season. Pretty active already in this province. As of the end of May, 53 versus 18, same time frame last year. So we know that the province is now said that they're going to repair the water bomber no timelines associated with that fifth one so down to a fleet of four what does it look like in your neck of the woods regarding what people are saying about preparing for what may indeed be wildfire season of note i don't know what the future holds but what's the feeling in labrador well, I could start. I was on the cabin Saturday, and I was walking through uh, the woods there. Uh, dry. Uh, one loose cigarette, and the whole area around my cabin could easily go up in flames. Um, it was very dry here for about two weeks. Um, you know, we were looking at uh, very high on the, uh, the I guess, the, the, the risk uh, index on the government website. Um, you know, it was uh, – we were – extremely, and I mean, I'm not even doing, extremely lucky that we did not have a wildfire in Lab West in the last two weeks because of how tinder dry the woods in Lab West were. Um, you know, and people in this region are extremely concerned. Um, in 2019, we lost our uh, air base for a uh, water bomber. Uh, every summer, a water bomber used to be stationed here in Labrador West. In uh, 2019, the Liberal government cut that. Uh, we don't have a water bomber here in, uh, in Western Labrador anymore. Um, only, we, we only go back to um, 2015. Um, you know, we had a wildfire that came and grazed the edge of, uh, of Wabush. Uh, you could, like I said, from my office here where I'm sitting talking to the phone, I could see the damaged forest just across the street here from me. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, we, we, we were a rash of the cuts to the fire service in this province. Uh, you know, we don't have that base here anymore. It's gone. And, you know, and when you ask government about it, they have no interest to bring it back. They said, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, if there's something, if we're called, we'll, we'll get there. But at the same time, um, you know, uh, you just go back to the uh, announcement um, that uh, I OC made in St. John's there a week ago, uh, you know, them alone uh, contributes uh, $500 million a year into the government coffers. Uh, you know, a wildfire can make that go off the map pretty quickly. So, you know, maybe it's time for government to reconsider uh, where they actually put bases, but also you got to remember places like Lab West, which is completely surrounded by boreal forest. We have to have some protection here. So it's one thing. I mean, the forest dry. That's one issue. One, when I was living and working in Jasper National Park, a job that I had one summer was dealing with fire load. What do we do in Labrador regarding that? And I'd be curious what we do on the island, too, because windfall and the fire load and the dead trees, of course, would be as dry as a bone. Do we do much in the way of preventative medicine in the boreal forest surrounding the communities in Labrador? Never seen anything done here. Remarkable. It's a, it's a, an annual issue right across the province of Alberta, certainly in the national parks. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to the implications of the Quebec fire or anything else in Labrador before we say goodbye? Yeah, well, just, I'll just go back to the fire thing. You know, like, we... we we actually, you know, we, we have them here. Um, you, if you could check back on historical maps and stuff here, some of the largest forest fires this province has ever seen were in Labrador. Uh, many of them are in rural and remote parts of Labrador, 
most places that most people never ever go to or are seen. But uh, in the last year or so, you're starting to see creeping closer and closer to infrastructure. Uh, we've had some up around the reservoir, smaller reservoir last year. Like this year, we had one, but even though it's on the Quebec side, it's still part of our integrative uh, infrastructure system. It'll go across the railway, cut us off. We have ones on the you know the 389, cut us off there. And you know we're we're uh, we're seeing the, the climate change here, Patty. The forests are getting drier. Our seasons are starting earlier. It goes back even to the to the dust from the mines, the forest fires. Climate change is a real thing, and it's going to cost this province significant investment to mitigate. And one of the things they're going to have to start doing is investing more into firefighting as service for the forest fires. We're just going to see more of them. You can like, mark my words, Patty. We're going to see more forest fires in the coming years. I wonder what the implication uh, real time this season is when we do know that there was a fitness test for the forest firefighters, many of which were unable to pass the test, consequently not able to perform as a forest firefighter. I wonder what that means just in terms of uh, numbers of forest firefighters and what, what we're going to have to do about that because we can't be fully and wholly reliant on you know losing some and maybe shared resources from other provinces. Do you know much about that? Because I've got a lot of stories coming from Labradorians telling me that there was a big fail rate in that fitness test. Well, you know, uh, it goes back to resourcing and government thing. You, um, we hire less firefighters than we ever have. We, Like I said, we have less water bombers than we ever have. This is a systemic issue from government trying to pinch pennies in the wrong places. It's time for government to wake up and start investing because climate change is going to cost us a lot of money if we don't start now. And this is the thing about it. Our climate is changing, and we have to be prepared, and clearly we're not prepared. Appreciate the time, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Jordan Brown, the NDP member for Lab West. Let's go to line number two. Greg, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Uh, isn't great. Yes, I, sir. Uh, I had a letter from school back in December 2017 to stay away from social media. I used to be on the open line show with you about my son. He's ADHD in school and about the school board and that. I couldn't get nothing done. The paperwork is unbelievable what they've done with it and how it's been done. I stayed away from this, but I come back on this morning. I phoned the school board in Cornbrook, told them to listen. I'm not on the open line show to give them any BS. I'm here to tell the truth. This is in writing for me to stay away from social media. And I got that letter in front of me. And because of what? What were you doing on social media that they sent you this warning letter? I was trying to get some help with school board and my son, who was ADHD in the school system. But they never did. The way the, the paperwork was done up and everything, they had it on paper. It's in writing on paper. He ran away from school on February 29th. That wasn't a leap year. Stuff like that. He injured other students in school. No no reports. Nothing. There was a logbook put on him the first day he went to school for, for behavior. They wouldn't. But when I requested these papers from the school board, that's when I found that out back in 2016, 2016. I started writing to Dale Kirby. That was the first minister I wrote to. The only minister I didn't write is Haggy this time. It was no good to write them because everything comes back to the school board and they don't do nothing. They don't believe a word I says. I think their ears are plugged up when I when he talks to me, I talks to them. But they should open up their ears and listen. Because 
I had another letter I got in front of me here. I used to have to go to school to St. Gregory Inn and Elder School System to take them across the road to the cafeteria that was there. But one day when I went in to sign the paper, there used to be a teacher standing up outside the principal's office all the time when I signed the paper. But when I went back, she wasn't there. But one day I went in, the paper was disappeared. There was no sign of that paper that I had signed about roughly a half hour before that. There must be a ghost or something in that school. We don't know. And what's happening with your child in school now? They had an incident with him again last week. Uh, not much. Gregory says, they don't want me. They don't want me. He, he wants to go to school, but they don't want him. And, and, and uh, he's graduating this year. They even kicked me out of school for asking questions. That's how bad it was. I stayed away from social media, I guess, since my last trip. But no good for the, uh, the school board. Federal school board told me uh, uh, this week, because I went and asked the Department of Education, well, he can go to school until he's 21 somewhere. And I asked the Department of Education in St. John's to see where, you know, where if he could go back to school on that. So they were going to leave him in this school here. They were supposed to set up some kind of program or something for him. But I've been talking to people, and they don't believe that there will be a program set up in this school because they don't want him. School board, people in the school board guaranteed that he would be safe in their school. Gregory is saying that the student assistant was hitting them over the years. I took him to school there a while ago, and the principal was out on the step, and I said, Gregory, tell her what happened yesterday. The principal said that couldn't happen because she's training another person to be a student assistant. Two of them are together all the time. That's the kind of stories you get from them. And I don't know. But there's nothing, there's nothing, the government wants these kind of people to sit in the corner somewhere. They don't want to help them. That's all wrong. Well, there's, you know, obviously if you look at it, it was just the Carter Churchill case, and we know that so many families with children in the K-12 system that need some additional support, and year over year telling us that it's either not in place at the beginning of the school year, or it's not adequate support being given, and consequently there's children falling through the cracks. I don't think anyone can argue with that point. Right now, I went to the Department of Justice and looked for some help. Okay, and? Over the paperwork. I went to the RCMP with paperwork. We, I was underneath uh, Western Health for a while with him. But what happened in Western Health? I went to the RCMP with the paperwork. They told me to go back to Western Health. I faxed the social worker. I faxed the person in Cornerbrook. No answers. But the last time I was talking to the social worker, she said that everything was cut off. We don't get no more help. I was diagnosed with cancer myself. That's why I went to ask. I made a phone call to see what would happen to my son if I had to go in the hospital or something. Because I got no one to look after him. It's only me and him. And they can torment me all they want to. I don't care. But what they've done to us in this school system, it wasn't fair. It wasn't right. And what the people that worked with Gregory in that school, there's some of them that retired don't know what was put on them papers and they signed them.
I'm sorry to hear this. I'm sorry to hear this was your experience, Greg. I've got to take uh, myself a break here, but hopefully people I, in authority are listening. What? I, got, I got one more option left. What's that? I was going to go to here and now, CBC here and now, see if I could get some of them to ask some questions. But that's the only option I got left about this paperwork, because uh, the Western Health won't get the paperwork checked, and the school board won't get the paperwork checked, and I can't afford to go get a lawyer. I went to the Department of Justice to see if I could get it done, and uh, and the only thing, they referred me to legal aid, and legal aid told me over the phone, if you want to divorce, come in, we help you. If you're charged with a crime, come in and help you. Other than that, we can't help you. Now, Dave, that's, can the I, system. Okay. that's the system you're, we're living to. Greg, I understand. Uh, I'm going to put you on hold. Dave, can you look up the number for playing for uh, Greg? We're going to give you a number that might be of some help to you, Greg. I'll put you on hold. You're going to speak with David, okay? Okay, then. Okay, no problem. There we go. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a summer camp of note, and then there's someone in the queue wants to talk about the National Dental Plan. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Mackenzie Hutchings, uh, representing the Labrador Lands and Waters Summer Camp. She's the coordinator, pardon me. Uh, line one. Mackenzie, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks. So this has been in place, I think, since 2018, uh, this Labrador Lands and Waters Science Camp. What is it about? Yeah, so the science camp um, began in 2018, you're correct, uh, with a two-year break in 2020 and 2021 um, due to the pandemic. But it's a a five-day hands-on science learning experience celebrating Labrador's lands and waters. So what would make it different? So is it basically for uh, partnership with the Labrador Institute and whether it be with Inu or Inuit? what What makes it different from summer camps that I may have been involved with? So this camp is hosted by the Labrador Campus uh, Memorial here in Happy Valley, Goose Bay. And we partner with the Nazi government, Indonesian, Nanatuva Community Council, as well as the Torngat Wildlife, Plants and Fisheries Secretariat um, to put off this five-day camp. So Labrador applicants are always prioritized, um, and we do have funding available for beneficiaries that are traveling from outside the Upper Lake Mobile area. So those are just some of the, I guess, bigger differences in our camp versus um, more traditional science camps. So what type of science are we talking about? Are we talking about plant ecology or marine ecology? What are we doing? So we have a really exciting lineup of modules this year, uh, including marine biology, plant biology, insects, foraging, um, using some of the materials that students will forage into botanical products, beekeeping in Labrador, cultural resource management, archaeology, um, and the list goes on and on. So there's lots of exciting modules coming up in this year's science camp. Targeting what age group? So it's open to students that will be entering grades 8 to 11 in fall of 2023 in Labrador. I'm sorry, I just had a little bleep in my headset. Uh, I missed the last part, but I, I'm pretty sure I caught the age group. So. What's the takeaway from students who have participated in the past? I mean, do you have returnees? Because there was a pretty wide age grade uh, level there. So do you have returnees? And what have they taken away, the reviews they've given you? Yeah, so we do have some students actually already uh, applied this year that were um, past participants in 2019 and 2022, which is really exciting to see those students uh, reapplying to come back. Um, I think the greatest takeaway that the students get is the variety in science learning. Um, and it's all very relatable. It's all based 
Um, you know, when we talk about insects, we talk about plants, we always talk about the ones that are relative to them in their hometowns and in their home regions. So they really appreciate that. Um, and it's a lot more relatable and interesting to them to bring back to their home communities. Is there a traditional uh, flair to this, whether it be with uh, Inu elders who are part of the delivery team? Or what, what role does tradition play in the delivery of these science programs? Yeah, absolutely. So we involve, um, when we reach out to our module leaders and they take on their modules, uh, sometimes they reach out to local partners that they want to work with. So we'll bring in, um, you know, people that are familiar with the land that are used to foraging. They'll kind of um, add that to the plant biology module or um, cultural resource management. There could be, you know, an elder be part of that module. We also do some traditional cooking with them throughout the week. So we take some of the um, items that they identify on the land and, you know, we don't harvest them necessarily on the spot just due to the season, but we take the same uh, items that they would have harvested and use them into cooking products that they then get to eat at the science camp. So that's another really nice module that we try to keep the food as traditional as possible as well. When does the camp begin? So the camp begins on Monday, July 10th and ends on Friday, July 14th. And if I want info or to apply for a spot, where do I go? So you can head to the Labrador Campus Facebook page. You'll see our ad there uh, with the link to apply. So it is a Google form. And if folks, um, you know, can't find it on Facebook or are having difficulty with the application, they're always welcome to reach out to me at mckenzie.hutchings at mon.ca. And that's Mackenzie spelled M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E dot Hutchings at mon.ca. And if anybody needs that information, we do indeed have it on hand here. Mackenzie, appreciate the time. Good luck with the camp. Awesome. Thanks so much. And we're accepting applications until June 16th. Terrific. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Mackenzie Hutchings, Bye-bye. Labrador Lands and Water Summer Camp Coordinator. Take one here, Dave, or what do you want me to do? Let's take a break. When we come back, National Dental Care. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning. Yeah, I'm going to ask you the same question again that people have been asking for, like this dental plan, like you say. Has there been any update on when or if you're ever going to come across with that or that uh, when you brought down the budget? Short answer is yes. So a couple of interesting things about the National Dental Care Plan. The, uh, the price tag has doubled. So it's going to cost about $13 billion over five years. It does indeed begin this year. The program is for uh, those families that meet the net income threshold, which is $90,000 or less, for 18 and under. So that's what's uh, started so far. So that's what started so far. Yep. So what's it in for us seniors? When did that start? Like I say, to, to me, low income, uh, is anybody on social services. Uh, and then next next bracket would be the minimum wage worker and uh, seniors. So that's the tree that I'm uh, talking about. Like I say, was anybody with $30,000, who's going, who's going to start first? Who's going to get the benefits? Is it going to start with the $90,000 and work their way down? No, that's going to be the measurement right across the board. So it will indeed uh, cover what they estimate to be some 9 to 9.5 million Canadians that will be eligible for this based on their family income. So that's pretty much how it goes. It's starting with uh, the 18 and unders, and then it moves off to the next age brackets, which I think are seniors next. Mm-hmm. And there's no specific, no specific uh, date when they're going to roll it out, got, there's nobody hasn't got an answer to that yet. 
they say by the end of 2025, everybody who's eligible based on their net family income will get this, will get the coverage. Yeah, it's a long time waiting. Like I say, like I say, a lot of us out here, a lot of us here now, like I say, needs our needs our dental work done. And like I say, uh, yeah, I'll ask you one more question now. Let's say, for instance, if someone had to go, say, get an extraction uh, within the frame line that this been passed by by Mister Trudeau's government. Uh, let's say if someone had to go and get it done, uh, like when the time uh, arises for to get it done. Uh, is there any such thing as a reimbursement? Let's say if someone already had paid up front, not, uh, will it be your... Not that I know of. No. No. Mm-hmm. And there's another threshold there. It's for families earning $70,000 or less, there will be no co-pays because this is a government-administered insurance program. So those are the two benchmarks. 70000 no co-pay, under 90000 the coverage as described. Yeah, well, that's it. Thanks. No problem. Appreciate the time. All right. He was quick. Uh, let's go. Line number one and say good morning to the insure staff representative at the FFAW. That's Dwan Street. And good morning, Dwan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. It's been a while. How so? What's <laughs> on your mind? Uh, well, uh, I did call in, first of all, to talk about snow crab, which is the hot topic right now in our industry, of course. But... Uh, before we get into that, I just wanted to remind your listeners who may be fish harvesters that the Newfoundland and Labrador Fish Harvesting Safety Association has a program currently um, to subsidize the cost of personal locator beacons for fish harvesters. And the funding that's available would cover 60% of those costs. Um, Transport Canada currently requires that every fishing vessel have an emergency distress signal device on board. And the most common, of course, are EPIRBs, uh, VHF, DSCs, but those can be quite costly. And these little personal locator beacons are actually quite convenient and uh, will send an emergency signal the second that you hit the water. So they're very cost-effective, and for any harvester that's listening right now and might be interested in that program, I urge them all to uh, contact Tina Pretty at the Safety Association. So did you just say that Transport Canada mandates one of these emergency position indicating beacons or radio beacons in every vessel? Every vessel needs some kind of emergency distress signaling device. Um, and most, of course, have a VHS, uh, VHF aboard. Yeah. Um, but larger vessels generally have EPIRBs. And uh, the PLBs are quite convenient, especially for small vessels. Uh, they just clip on. I have one myself. And you register it with your emergency emergency contacts with Transport Canada, <clears throat> and those folks will get uh, will get a call as well as uh, Transport Canada should you enter water. Now it's not for me to spend other people's money, but an EPIRB in particular. I know it comes with a monthly fee, apparently, and those types of things. But you know, even when the reaction to the two young fellows lost from Mary's uh, Mary's Harbor is immediately thereafter. The father of one, who's the boss at the Labrador Shrimp Company, put him in every single vessel for the obvious reasons. Because Mark and Joey, if we had to know where they were when the EPIRB went off, we may have saved them. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the issue a lot of times. By the time we realize that a fish harvester is overdue, uh, it might be hours at that point that uh, the vessel has capsized or somebody may have entered the water. So... uh, 
the quicker we can get a signal and find out that somebody is in trouble, obviously that's going to going to be to the benefit of uh, ensuring no loss of life. Yeah, of course. And uh, it's uh, Mark Russell and Joey Jenkins. I mean, you should use their names. And I mean, if you lose an engine, you're at the mercy of the tide, and then consequently, where you normally might fish, you could be miles and miles and miles away from there. And searching the ocean is difficult as it is. So this is really something that, again, it's not my money. But I don't know why people wouldn't take that next step. Absolutely. And like I said, these little PLBs are very easy to use, very user-friendly, and uh, can definitely make the difference uh, of you coming home to your family or not. And so what's the difference between the PLB and what I understand to be the EPIRB? An EPIRB is a larger device. A PLB is a personal locator beacon. So that's actually clipped on the individual. And rather than the actual vessel capsizing and the EPIRB having to go in the water, if you go overboard, uh, it will signal the second that you go overboard, not just the loss of the vessel itself. Is there any difference in how far a distress signal can be transmitted with the PLB versus an EPIRB? Not to my knowledge, no. Okay. no. Interesting. Okay, I know you want to talk about snow crab as well. Let's go. Sure. So, uh, I mean, it's not news to anybody right now uh, who's following the industry that we're in uh, the midst of a catastrophic collapse in snow crab prices. Um, harvesters are finding it very difficult at the moment to uh, keep their enterprises financially viable. We, uh, I mean, this is nearly three weeks into the fishery right now after uh, after delay in the season. And what we're seeing, you know, we try our best to promote a fair, equitable fishery and for equal opportunity to all, but what we're seeing right now is a lot of harvesters um, unfairly limited in when they can go, how much product they can bring, and especially for small enterprises. Like my area that I represent is uh, 3PS, of course, on the south and southwest coast, and it's got a lot of small boat harvesters who are being limited to very small amounts, somewhere between 3,000 to 5,000 pounds a trip, uh, with no idea of when their next trip is going to be. There's uh, no guarantee there. I hear from folks daily who are very worried um, on what this is going to mean for them, not only right now during the season, but after the season. And, uh, of course, folks also have a lot of investments that they've made over the past few years and that uh, are really important to protect. So we've been trying to find ways that we can appeal to both federal and provincial governments because I think both have a key role to play here in assisting harvesters. And uh, Greg Pretty, our president right now, is currently in Ottawa presenting a proposal to the federal government to assist harvesters um, as a supplement to their income this year and help protect those investments because, you know, at the end of the day, both governments whether that be the feds or the provincial government, which oversees processing here in the province, do have a social responsibility as well. And uh, I think it's important that we try to get as much aid as we can right now to get through this difficult time. Nobody could have predicted what happened with the snow crab market from last year. Um, we certainly didn't expect those record high prices to be sustainable in the marketplace, but just the pace of the collapse in the market kind of took everybody by surprise. And right now we're left trying to wade through what's left of our season and make sure that harvesters can get their product in, that processing workers get that work, and that we get our pristine product to the market and try to get that market to rebound. 
The issue has been quite clear. There was a really strong retail market, not so much on the white tablecloth and the restaurant. Now it's an exact flip-flop. It's 180 degrees. So even Mr. Pretty himself saying, with some very generous pandemic supports, it led to the enormous prices that we saw last year. So if, if that's the case, and I believe it is, then there was some foresight that the market wasn't going to be as strong this year. I didn't know if it was going to be dropping from 7, 750 to 220, but there was going to be some sort of soften coming. The, the question people would ask about the request for assistance, and Mr. Pretty also says the union takes no responsibility in the standoff, but the union called for solidarity amongst the crab harvesters to leave their boat tied up as they tried to navigate a new price, of course, which didn't really come to pass, just a sliding scale that has increased the price to 225. So... Isn't the loss of revenue self-imposed? I wouldn't say so. Um, the tie-up was, as you say, a show of solidarity, hoping that the marketplace would rebound and to try to get a fair price for harvesters. Um, the proposal that our president is currently uh, presenting, it's not to replace EI or anything like that. It's an assistance. And uh, the key here is not the tie-up or whether it's self-imposed, it's an 80% of landed value in our province was snow crab last year, and our province runs on snow crab. Harvesters are seeing a 70% drop in their incomes. And, you know, we, while we can look for extensions in seasons to try to get that product in, um, you know, we're going to run into issues, whether that be soft-shell protocols or, you know, obviously we don't want to be, be doing anything that's detrimental to the resource. So... We're having some issues, like I said, with processors, um, limiting harvesters, what they can bring in. We not only need the feds who are listening to our presentation today to step forward and assist harvesters, but right now we need our province as well. Premier Fury did make a commitment when the agreement was signed to prosecute the fishery for 220 locked in for the season that he would start over this summer to look at revamping the current system. But we need to know what that plan is and a defined plan because, you know, like you said, nobody could have seen what was going to happen with the amount of disposable income in the U.S. drying up, which is, of course, our largest place in the market. But right now we have, have a lot of corporate concentration in this fishery that's causing a lot of issues, specifically for small boat harvesters. So the province needs to step in here and really push the message that holding a processing license in this province is a privilege, it's not a right. And with that privilege comes a sense of social responsibility to make sure that the value of that processing license is brought back into communities. And our, it's not only our rural communities. I mean, St. John's, Gander, Cornerbrook, all these hubs run on the fishery. And what we're seeing right now is corporate concentration, a harvesters limited, being told when they can go, if they can go, with no guarantee they're going to land their product for, for the season. So we also need to make sure that the Premier is living up to his agreement that he is going to review and revamp the system, and we need the ability for outside buyers to come in and buy this product. A couple of things. So the Premier also said that it was not a stipulation in the agreement signed between ASP and FFAW, but he would take a look at it, as he should, because the annual rackets we have over this should be avoidable if we can figure out a new way forward. I think he also said that both sides would have to agree to a mechanism, which is a also a very big ask. Uh, on the outside buyers, I don't dispute it, but whether it be the ASP and their social license for having a processing license or, or outside buyers, <clears throat> what leads the union to believe 
that there would be any sort of real uptick in price per pound with an outside buyer or otherwise because if the market is what the market is and this is not to be crooked or cross but the market doesn't care what the union thinks the market doesn't care what the association thinks the market definitely doesn't care what the premier thinks so what leads the union to believe outside buyers would improve harvester's lot in life to any appreciable effect well of course i mean Petty, like everything in life, there's no guarantee. But, you know, I think it's one of these things that we don't know until we try. And, of course, the current system that we have of FOS, which is Final Offer Selection, was based on wharf competition. And when this whole system was brought into effect, and, of course, that was after the battle on RMS, um, there was a lot more competition. So the idea of a minimum price works if you have competition fighting for that product. And that's what the whole system is based on. But what we're looking at now is a concentrated number of buyers. We have a key number of large players. And morph competition is pretty much nil. So I think bringing in competition into the province could help the market as a whole, not only for here in Newfoundland and Labrador, but for other fisheries like in the Gulf as well. There's also a difference in price based on, well, I think there's a 30% penalty for the undersized crab. Is there harvesters telling us stories that they're not getting 220, but they're getting buck 90? And if so, is that because of undersized, or what is the story there? Absolutely. So what you're referring to is a tolerance that was put into place. Uh, it's been there since 1998, actually. Um, and the tolerance is on under 4-inch crab, and it would allow up to 20% of your catch if it's under 4-inch crab to be paid at the full premium. We call an over 4-inch crab a premium crab and an under 4-inch a standard crab. So that tolerance was put in place uh, in the late 90s, and it was actually a conservation measure because, uh, of course, if you're getting paid more for a larger product, there's always a risk of high grading. So it's actually in DFO's Integrated Fisheries Management Plan for snow crab that we had this two-tiered price system for different sizes, but that there be this 20% tolerance. Uh, ASP are currently disputing uh, that the tolerance is still in effect, and uh, we, of course, continue to um, ask harvesters if they've lost 30 cents a pound without that 20% tolerance, please contact your staff rep. Um, so that would be myself for 3PS, Sherry Glenn for 3K, Jeff Griffin for 4R and 2J, and Miranda Butler here in 3L. And uh, provide us with your settlement sheets if you can, and we're certainly going to proceed as uh, we can to push back on that and ensure that that very important conservation measure stays in place. Uh, last one before I let you go, Duan. When we're talking about, you know, we don't know whether or not the, everyone will land the entirety of their individual quota or the 54,000 metric tons will be landed in full. But if we're talking about some compensation for those impacted, is there a consideration inside the union to either waive or to reduce union dues to keep more money in their pockets while they try to navigate this tricky six-week standoff? That's not a question I can answer. <laughs> um, it's just outside my position, but uh, I'm sure that some of our executives will be more than happy uh, to answer that for you. I appreciate you making time for the program. I hope you're doing well, Duan. Thanks, Fatty, and thanks to all your listeners. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Duan Street is the FFAW insurer staff representative for 3PS. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's uh, let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Uh, before I start, Patty, I'd like to uh, offer my heartfelt condolences to the fighting Newfoundlander, Mr. Gotch Atchikiri. I haven't talked to you since I might want to say that. Fair enough. You certainly a passionate voice on this program. Certainly was. And for all Newfoundland Labrador, the fisheries includes. 
Uh, Paddy, Colin, to you this morning about a couple of uh, things that mostly do with DFO. Uh, myself and Paul White are continuing our lobby for the uh, River Guardians, trying to get some more hired on and uh, get them hired on for a long period of time. Uh, getting more hired on seems slim and none of a possibility, but to get keep them keep the existing uh, guardians hired on for a longer period of time certainly is a possibility. That I, I don't know why DFO is not being more proactive about it, and why they're going to wait till probably the eleventh hour uh, for the minister to come out and make the announcement that they're going to uh, keep them hired on again. So it's kind of sound like she's the hero. I can't find any numbers associated with the contract. Last year, it was left for $5 million. It probably cost a little bit more when they kept them on for a little bit longer. But there's too few guardians anyway, and they're on the river for far too, uh, far too little time. So I'm trying to find a number. We were actually going to try to get Minister Murray on the program sooner than later to talk about things including the River Guardian program. I actually spoke to, I don't know, spoke to some liberal representative the other oh it's uh goody hutchings about the river guardian program she didn't have much information but i'm trying to find it yes and none of them seem to have much information patty nor do they seem to be inclined to have much information and that's my frustration too patty it's uh dealing with it uh you talk about the money for the for the river watch or the uh river guardian patty when you look at what's going on on the West Coast in British Columbia with all those millions and billions of dollars going towards fishery and agriculture and everything else, and all we're asking for is a measly couple of million to extend this program? I understand. Yeah, we've been talking about it many times with different people. Yes, indeed. Patty, moving on, uh, talk about the food fishery. And, God almighty, I don't know why everything has to be the 11th hour, Patty. What's the big secret, unless they're coming up with some kind of change, which I doubt. But, you know, people are, are away, living, a, living away from home, working, want to come home for the holidays, planet, and that, and still have no idea what, what the heck is going to happen. My 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 uh, take on it is it's going to be exactly the same as last year, all the weekends, and last week in September. Yeah, very likely. I mean, last year it started on the 2nd of July, if I'm not mistaken, 39 days, very similar to the year before. So I'm, I doubt there's going to be any change. You know, we're not going to be talking about log books and tags and none of that stuff. So if it's going to be the 2nd of July, 39 days, just like the year before, I don't know why they hold that so close to their breast. It's not like a state secret. Yeah, really. You know, and I, I wish, Kay, for this year, DFO will come out and make a clear and concise statement about the boat limit. You know, they, they say it, it's a, it's it's not in fact, and it's not. But then, you, what I find difficult to handle, Patty, is that you have DFO officers out there who are who are, who are making their own assumptions on it. So if the department is saying no, the boat limit is not 15 fish, but you have a, a, a DFO enforcement officer come on see more than 15 fishing boats and charge that person, that's not right. They have to have a uniform understanding, a uniform decision right across the board, I would, I would think. Yeah, but they, they kind of clarified it last year but in some form or fashion. That comes from an email that actually I believe you sent me, is that they did say that they wanted to be five per person, 15 per boat, but you would not get arrested or fined if you did indeed have more than 15 because you had five fishers on board, right? Yes, indeed, Patty. But then I hear that there are DFO officers out there, enforcement officers, saying that to people, if you bring in more than 15 fish, I'm going to charge you. And that, Patty, is not fair. 
No, it's not. But of course, it sort of flies in the face of what they actually said in an email. I bet you if I looked, I could find it. So if they've told me or told you, you told me and I told the listener, then boy, they'd have a hard time going around charging people. But it's not wrong for you to say, look, if there's going to be a certain process, a number, a threshold that we all have to abide by, let's make it clear. Not one uh, enforcement officer thinks this way and another thinks a different way because that's nonsense. Correct. Okay. Patty, moving on to the uh, Capelin fishery. Yeah. Uh, again, that, you know, there's calls for that to be shut down. And, my God, Patty, if anything happens to the Capelin, the whole bottom is going to drop right out of the fishery. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not an alarmist. I'm not, a, you know, I just call it how it is. Well, it's a forage fish, and we know it's one of the linchpins. There is actually a letter I think that's been written to the editor for publication in the telegrams that someone sent to me during the show this morning, so I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'm pretty sure it's about Capelin, and I'll get to it sometime this afternoon when I get a chance. Fair enough. And, Patty, before I go, I heard uh, Junior, I can't remember his last name, from uh, Swag, I guess it is, uh, on your show there a couple mornings ago, talk about the uh, catch and release issue once again, saying how detrimental it is, how many thousands of fish there are dying. I, I picked up on one part of his conversation there, Patty. He said that you catch a, a grilled or a salmon, you release it, it swims off great, but within 30 days it turns up dead. Now, where the heck is he getting that information to? And I also would like to say, Patty, with all these mortalities that he's talking about, he's such an avid fisherman, where is the proof? You would think that after all these allegations that man has been making about catch and release, he would have some kind of proof to back up what he's saying. I can't and find it. Uh, and I'd like to see that study that, that he said that salmon dodged within 30 days. And there, and here you got uh, Mr. Chris Berbisky in Labrador proving otherwise and proving Mr. Proving Junior Ron. I li- I've asked for these reports and these studies so that I can see them and read them uh, for myself to get the ins and outs because there's always a lot more to it than meets the eye when you have very brief conversations on these complicated issues. Uh, Barry, I'm zipping off to the news, but I appreciate your time. I'll give you the last word. Thank you very much, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, there we go. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Mayor Rose, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thank you. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. Now, you're one of the folks in your community who's still optimistic about the future of the Stephenville Airport. Now that we've cleared that hurdle regarding a historic insolvency, and it's now the ball is firmly in Mr. Diamond's court, do we have any sort of update, because you've heard the stories as much as I have, about whether or not he has the financial wherewithal to follow through on some pretty lofty plans with some pretty serious investments? So what's the status? Yeah, so actually he's moving along really well, Patty. Uh Actually, uh, Mr. Carl Diamond and his investors have transferred the funds, uh, close to $2 million, into the trustee account of the legal side of the Seymour Airport Corporation to clear the debts, which was part of the terms of the uh, sale. So from his perspective, everything has been followed through. The money has transferred. As you well know, it takes time for the trustee, the lawyers, to clear up the debt, for example, one was a $900,000 line of credit. 
that was guaranteed by the provincial government. That's one of the line items that has to be paid, plus many others. But from there, then uh, I presume Carl Diamond will have additional funding from his investors to carry through with his business ideas for the Stephenville International Airport. And so $2 million, of course, a far cry from the $500 million he was talking about investing. So does the Diamond Group actually own the Stephenville Airport at this time, or they simply have cleared that line of credit? And what are the other outstanding issues? Well, they legally don't own it at this moment, but they have met the terms with the transfer of the necessary funds in the deal that once the legal team on the Stephenville Airport Corporation side has cleared up the terms from that transfer of funds, the deed will then be transferred to Mr. Diamond, and he will officially own the Stephenville International Airport. What was the purchase price? The purchase price actually... And here's a lot of controversy on this one. The deal was that he had to clear all the debt of the airport, encumber all the encumbrances that are associated with taking over the airport. For example, uh, there's a uh, $3 million uh, upgrade going uh, with Transport Canada and the federal government on the lighting. Uh, The feds put in approximately $2 million. Carl Diamond will have to carry forward with an additional million to complete that project. So basically... From that, but the actual legal sale after all the outstanding debt is uh, carried through is actually six dollars and seven, I believe, a seventy-something cents. So that was the deal that was negotiated with the Seymour Airport Corporation. It was an airport that was in trouble. It was in bankruptcy that Carl Diamond cleared. It was an airport that had considerable debt. It was an airport that was reliant upon the town of Stephenville to keep the lights on. We were putting three, four $400,000 a year into the airport, gaining no tax revenue from the airport. But we're hoping that's all about to change. Carl Diamond now will own the airport. It'll be a taxable commodity for us in the town of Stephenville. And it's my hope that if he's got a couple of million dollars to pay the debt, he's got more than that to do some of his business uh, prospects uh, of the future. So all that being said, does that mean that Stephenville Council will no longer entertain any more transfer of monies to the airport authority? That's correct. Okay. Let's move off to the the sale of the Stephenville port to uh, World Energy GH2. You know, for a lot of people, this is, you know, and you can't speak for John originally, but this is a bit of cart before the horse. There hasn't been a final approval of the environmental assessment that's been achieved mm-hmm. or granted by the province yet. So talk us through the working uh, the working par- points regarding the purchase of the port, starting with how much? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not privy to what the sale was on the port. It is private to private, so we're not involved at all on that one. Uh, but I will say that uh, John Risley and Sean Lee, which is World Energy uh, Horizon Maritime, Horizon Maritime has got a significant footprint in the maritime uh, uh, industry uh, in this province in Nova Scotia. And uh, they purchased a port for, I presume, two reasons. The main reason would be the impact that it will have as a transshipment site for ammonia uh, as we produce uh, green hydrogen uh, for the uh, European market, primarily Hamburg for an offtake at this point, from what I understand. But more importantly, here's a company now that's got the capital, got the background with Horizon Maritime, that is now going to put necessary capital to uh, increase uh, infrastructure at the port. Obviously, it's going to require some upgrades uh, for the pier and for the offloading and onloading. But there's also a company that's got several vessels in their fleet. Uh, so it's a really good move. Uh, I think the timing was right for them. 
And, and there's one thing I got to say about the Port of Stephenville that's so, so unique. It's connected to the Stephenville International Airport. And, Patty, uh, I just, I've said this a few times, but it's so important that I got to say it again that there's only five or six places in the world where you can have intermodal transportation, sea to air, air to sea for heavy industry. The closest to Stephenville, Newfoundland is Seattle, Washington. There's only five, six places in the world. So here's a very valuable port that's going to receive 12 plus billion investment. We're going to be leading North America possibly as a green energy hub. And remember, we have a lot of check boxes, but what's the biggest checkbox? We have the best wind corridor, Stephenville Basin, Georgia Port Port, the best wind corridor in all of North America. So when you have big capital investment, it's like solar panels, no different. If you got the best done, you're going to get a better return on your investment. But for these wind turbines, their ability to do the return on the investments for the stakeholders and the investors and the investment firms, you're going to get a faster return on investment because we have the best wind corridor. And, and when you think Newfoundland and Labrador, we're now diversifying our revenue streams. From energy, we have massive hydroelectric. We've got massive oil and gas fields. Now we have this massive wind energy and hydrogen export. This is, this is GDP. Like in Newfoundland and Labrador, we produce more GDP than any province in this country per capita. But we're going to produce more GDP because of the export of our uh, energy from hydrogen to ammonia. And that $12 billion, of course, is if all three phases are satisfied, and they do indeed have a market for all of the ammonia that will be produced, if when that comes to pass, because the initial proportion here with the 164 wind turbines, I've had a hard time doing the math on it, but the $50 million secured from a South Korean company got them 20%, is so, so, so said the news release, of phase number one, which doesn't really sound like the kind of monies we were talking about when we're talking about $12 billion at the end of the day. But I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say this morning, Mayor Rose, before I have to go? No, I just want to say, I'll cool off by saying this, Patty. The future is so bright in Stephenville, we got to wear shades. That's a good thing. The region yes, can sure use an economic shot in the air. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyway, take care and all the best, sir. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Mayor Rose. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Mayor Rose, town of Stephenville. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, for the first time, the Labrador Campus of Memorial University is offering graduate programs, a master's degree or a Ph.D. in Arctic and Subarctic Futures at the campus in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Joining us on the line is Ashley Consolo. She's the dean of the School of Arctic and Subarctic Studies at that campus. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, Dr. Ashley Consolo is the vice provost for Labrador Campus and the dean of the School of Arctic and Subarctic Studies in Happy Valley Goose Bay and joins us on line number one. Good morning, Dr. Consolo. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Always great to talk to you. Great to have you back on the program. For starters, you know, the obvious is, and we're dealing with this in different disciplines across the country, getting courses offered where people live goes a long way to recruiting more people into these disciplines, whether we're talking about family doctors or inside of your studies. Before we get to the ins and the outs, how long has this been in the making? Uh, it's been about two years in development, uh, but the conversations around having graduate options right here in Labrador that reflect what people are looking to learn, how they want to learn, and in the locations they want to learn has really been ongoing for well over a decade with people really requesting this. So it's, it's a very exciting and historic moment for us. So what has been created? Uh, we have this really amazing suite of graduate programs uh, in Arctic and Subarctic Futures. So it's an interdisciplinary program that you can do full-time or part-time. 
And you can take it through multiple pathways. So you can do your master's coursework, a master's thesis, a PhD, or a graduate diploma. So we really set it up to make sure that people had um, options that worked for them, for their professional lives and their personal lives, and also for them to be able to pursue the type of academic interests that they might have and the type of research partnerships that they want to develop. What would fall under subarctic or Arctic studies? What exactly is this discipline? Yeah, so it's, it's a very interdisciplinary dynamic um, field of, of research and, and thought. And really what it's doing is bringing people in who want to explore multiple topics and multiple research areas that really matter to people in Arctic and subarctic regions. And what we've really emphasized in this program is obviously Indigenous leadership and Northern leadership, but a, a positive forward-thinking approach. So instead of looking at um, deficit-based systems, which often often happens when we talk about the North, it's looking at how do we think into the future and create the conditions for positive, healthy, flourishing Northern communities and Northern peoples. And how do we support already ongoing, amazing initiatives, research, and leadership that's already happening in the North and really bring that to the forefront and support people who are doing amazing things to continue to do those amazing things and achieve their educational goals. Since you're starting from scratch, so to speak, here with this graduate program, does that mean you have to foster relationships with other academic uh, institutions, for instance, like McGill, which I know has a subarctic research station, I believe, in Shefferville, Quebec? Yeah, so we definitely um, have a lot of partnerships um, that are developing and strengthening, particularly with the northern post-secondary institutions in Canada. So with Nunavut Arctic College and Yukon University, um, you know, there's really great things happening there. And we had, um, when we were developing this program with Indigenous leaders and elders and community members and researchers here in Labrador, we did a substantial sort of scan around the whole Circumpolar North and internationally around programs that might be similar so that we were creating something that really resonated with here but wasn't duplicating things that people could do elsewhere. Um, so our program is a combination of land-based intensive courses where people come together and, and uh, have those intensive times, but then they go back and do live virtual courses as well. So you don't have to leave your community or your family or your job, and this program fits right in, and people can can do it in, in a way that supports what they're already doing in the world. Is MUN in general or the Labrador campus part of the University of the Arctic? Yeah, Memorial is, and, and that makes us part of the University of the Arctic as well. We have a very strong presence there and a lot of great partnerships throughout Memorial, but also at the Labrador campus. Our faculty are involved in a variety of University of the Arctic networks. Um, some are, are uh, just two faculty members, actually. We're just over in, in Norway with Sami University doing some of the partnerships there, and we're looking at developing some educational exchanges between the Labrador campus and Sami University, and there's there's lots of research interest there as well. So, yeah, we're, we're a very dynamic part of that network and something that we're very proud to be a part of. Let's start with the uh, uh, focus areas on land. What are some of the key focus areas, whether it be of concern or, or curiosity? Um, well, a lot of the, the pieces that um, this cohort of students have coming in are really looking at things around um, Indigenous and Northern leadership, self-determination and identity and things around how do we enhance educational um, systems to support uh, northern learners and indigenous learners and really bring in curriculum and teaching resources that will help to change systems to have, have the students who are learning the curriculum actually see themselves within it. 
there's also a strong theme of Indigenous language preservation and reclamation among this group. So it's really exciting to see the different areas that people are, are going into uh, and how they're coming together in this program, you know, all different backgrounds, all different ages, all different regions, and exploring together in the courses what it means to, to live and thrive in the North and then taking their own research directions in ways that, that meets the priorities of the communities and the groups they're working with. I spoke with Dr. Tyler Eddy last week on the program. As a result of a huge amount of funding dollars coming from the federal government, he's going to be looking at carbon sink, and importantly in the Labrador Sea. Any relationship between your campus and that work? There isn't, but I can tell you there's a huge obvious interest in climate change for Labrador and all across the north. Uh, and we know that's going to be a major priority that communities uh, would like research, but also a number of our students coming in have expressed a lot of interest in uh, not only climate change, but the climate adaptation and all the different pieces. Now, from the technological perspective, that would require our partnerships with, with other great units, such as engineering in different places throughout Memorial. And so we're also looking to build uh, with students as they come in with their interests to bring in supervisors that have diverse expertise from all the campuses of Memorial. How many students in the first cohort? Uh, the first cohort has 14, and all from Labrador and Nunavut, and all women, which is really exciting. Is this already underway? Did it already start? It already started, yet yeah, We had our first cohort intensive, so we had our opening celebration and the first part of a, a land-based course uh, three weekends ago. And yeah, the students are now off and they're working on their programs and they've got, they'll be coming back to Goose Bay for another gathering uh, the first week of July. What's the long-term vision for growth, whether it be the number of students or the program offerings? Um, both. So we, this program will continue year over year. So our next application intake is November 1st. Um, so if people out there are listening, you know, reach out and we can provide more information and the, the applications will be due November 1st. But we're also moving into developing a full undergraduate program, which would be amazing to have here in Labrador. And that will be very much um, created with communities and, and partners and elders and leaders here to reflect um, a, a unique form of undergraduate learning. So we're very excited about that. We're looking at increased partner opportunities to bring in other programs from other units. Um, you know, a lot of requests for education and business and social work. We have a partnership with Nunavut Arctic College to do some joint programming in the coming years, which we're very excited about. Uh, and then, of course, our wonderful Bachelor of Science in Nursing program, which started last year, has their second intake starting this fall. So we're, we're on a rapid growth trajectory, and we couldn't be happier to continue to support students um, right here in Labrador. Does the rapid growth come with some expansion for fi uh, financial assistance, scholarships, or bursaries or otherwise? Yeah, we're working on that. We certainly see um, accessibility of education as a major priority. So looking at opportunities to um, find ways to support students' education if they don't have support um, through other means. And also working with interested donors and finding ways to support student scholarships and bursaries so that we continue to remain accessible for people who, who want to come and pursue their educational goals. Last one. We know what this will mean for the campus. We know what it will mean for the students and the eventual graduates. What does it mean for Labrador? Oh, it's, it's, it's a dream come true. And we've all been talking about it. I mean, everyone that's been working on this for years can't believe that it's actually here. Because when you think about the impact of bringing in students and providing education and having students work with community-identified needs and priorities on research, if you think in five years, in 10 years, what that's going to mean to have a whole cohort of Northern research leaders who are doing their own research on their own priorities, 
with their own organizations, that's that's transformative. Um, and this first cohort is an incredible group who are already doing really amazing things in the north. And so when we see what they're going to be doing, I mean, we can't even we can't even imagine. And that's what keeps us motivated and inspired uh, day in and day out as we do this work is is really how education can be that transformative change in region. I said that was last one. That was a lie. This is the last one. So, <laughs> you know, institutions of higher learning, you know, trade schools or vocational schools will be different from universities or other general colleges. What are the prospects for your future graduates in these programs, whether it be master's or PhD? Is it to move directly into research done with Memorial University? Is there such a thing as a private sector opportunity for your eventual graduates? There is a whole suite of opportunities for people that come out with uh, masters and PhDs and diploma degrees. So that's everything from you know working in government, working in industry, looking at working in academia. I mean, we would love to to welcome professors into the the Labrador campus in the coming years. Um, there's nonprofit opportunities. There's obviously all levels of indigenous, municipal, provincial, and federal opportunities. Um, people starting their own businesses and entrepreneurship. So that we really see this program as the, the springboard for students doing what they want to do in the future and creating those new opportunities. Uh, and really making sure, too, that like a lot of the, the high-level leadership positions that we see all across the North, um, you know, it require advanced educational degrees. And we want to make sure that those positions are occupied by people in the North and from the North uh, who will bring that Northern leadership perspective. So lots of opportunity for graduates coming out of this program. And because it's so interdisciplinary, they can take it in the direction that they want for their future um, career goals and, and what they want. Well, I guess there's a hearty congratulations due. So congratulations to you and your team, Dr. Consola. Oh, thanks so much. We're just so thrilled. And we, we can't look, wait to welcome more students and work with these ones. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> take care. You too. Bye-bye. Dr. Ashley Consolo is the Vice Provost of Labrador Campus and Dean of the School of Arctic and Subarctic Studies. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we had an interesting conversation with Ken Dix, a, pharmacy, a pharmacist out in Central, talk about this whole business about tampered eye medications. You know, single-dose vial being used for four or five different doses. Interesting explanation as to why that's even a possibility. We're going to talk about the dose splitting right after this. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. Thank you for asking. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, before I get to the point of the uh, the eye injection thing, I was was it? I think it was Brian this morning who called in about the Canadian Open and Mike Weir and and things. Uh, about I guess probably ten years ago, I I was at a auction at the high school in uh, CBS Holy Spirit, uh, and while I was going through the items, I was looking at all the things that they were auctioning off, and one of these things which amazed me as to how it found its way to this auction, was an actual uh, golf club uh, produced by TaylorMade. Uh, it was a duplicate of the club used by Mike Weir uh, when he won the Masters. Uh, in a big brushed aluminum case uh, with the TaylorMade logo and everything on it, and I said, man, oh, man, a limited number of these things were produced. Uh so uh, when the auction began, I, I, you know, I said I'll throw in a crazy bid uh, just to see, because uh, I figured this thing would go for a small fortune. 
So I threw in a bid of 200 bucks. I'd be darned if I didn't get it. And I still have it. Now, uh, so I'm sure you can appreciate his word of a heck of a lot more than 200 bucks. But uh, if Brian would like to call, give me a call, because I think I know Brian, and Brian knows me, uh, I'll let him have a look at it so he can drool over. Uh, it, it was Sean. Really Sean Callahan is the guy called. Sean, it was. Sean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can come and have a look at it, and he can drool over it, because it is a fantastic piece of, uh, piece of memorabilia. Uh, Just before we move on, did you say it's a tailor-made? Yeah, yeah it's a tailor-made duplicate. Okay. It's uh, the club duplicate, the club that uh, Mike Weir used when he won the Masters. Brilliant, 2003. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's got a head cover with it. It's got a certificate of uh, its number of uh, the limited number that they produce, and this is one of uh, ten of 150 or whatever. I forget it now because I haven't looked at it for a while. But the case is fantastic. It's like a mini coffin that it's in. Uh, it's all laid down into a velvet thing. It's just, it's just fantastic, and they produced a limited number of these things, and it's an actual golf club. Uh, I've, I've never used it. It's still wrapped, and it's wrapping and everything. It, it's actually beautiful. So, uh, Just a quick comment on that front. So, of course, where's a lefty? And there's a pretty famous yeah. golfer and commentator named Bob Murphy. For a long time, yeah. he also represented TaylorMade as a sales guy. And he I remember him saying this on the broadcast one day, that he was just shocked when he'd come to Canada to sell TaylorMade clubs with the percentage of left-handed golfers, basically because we have yeah. so many hockey players here. So in the United States, the average or pardon me, the percentage of golfers that are lefties is about 10%. In this country, it's almost 40%, said Bob Murphy. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, but he said they sold more left-handed clubs in Canada than throughout the entirety of the United States. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, look, I'm a left-handed golfer. Oh, yeah. I've always been a left-handed golfer. I use, uh, I use tailor-made clubs. Uh, and I've always wondered that because when you go to the States and you go to all these golf places to buy clubs and things, you always see that very few left-handed little clubs you can pick up, little chipping clubs and things. But when you go to Canadian places that have these little discount club clubs, you can always find lots of lefty clubs. And this probably because of the hockey issue. I was a left-handed uh, hockey player as well. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's amazing. And it's also amazing that a lefty would win the Masters, you know, somebody like him, a Canadian, and Phil Mickelson and people like that. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, this thing is a great piece of trivia. But the reason I called was about the eye injection thing, and I was listening, and I was one of those people that lined up for this $2,000 a pop eye injection. Uh, I just had eye problems and eventually got referred to a, uh, a private clinic who were do was doing these things, and I've had eye problems ever since. This obviously didn't work. But what bothered me about the whole conversation here was how are pharmacies uh, dispensing this to individuals? I thought that they would be dispensing these things to the doctors themselves because uh, I didn't. I didn't get it. I got it from the doctor. I just went to his office and. He shot me up and kicked me out and shot the next person. So I don't know how many doses he took from a particular vial. I have no earthly idea, but what I can say is, even though I've spoken with Ken now about this and tried to fill in some of the blanks that were in my head, I'm still as confused as I was when I first heard the news story. And, you know, yeah. even the way Health Canada has reacted to this, and the fact that Mr. Dix and others, and a lawyer, I think his name is Keith Morgan in Ontario, who's an expert in the field, they've, you know, sent a product to Health Canada for uh, examination. They simply destroyed it. In 2017, they acknowledged it was a problem. In 2022, they 
they said it wasn't. Apparently, the provincial government, through all the reading between the lines that I can do, is people knew this was happening, and it had just continued to happen. And not just in this province, but in different parts of the country. It's a strange story. Yeah, you know, that's what got, got my attention, the fact that I actually got these injections, and I don't know if it came from one vial or what it came from, but I do know I've had eye problems ever since. And, you know, I didn't continue the bloody injections because they were done at the Health Science. This particular doctor, who I won't name, had uh, visiting rights there, and I went this particular day, and I, I, I just got no patience for all these big, long waits. And I went in, and this day I decided to ask, and here was 27 people sitting in the waiting room with exactly the same eye appointment time. And, you know, I lost it. And I said to the receptionist, I know you're going to be the brunt of this, and it's not your fault because you're just the person that's at the front desk. But I said, this is crazy. You know, I come here for two or three hours. I see the doctor for all of 30 seconds, and there's all these people here with the same appointment. You know, it's a bloody money grab. So I left, and I, I never went back. And Maybe that contributes to the fact that I still have an eye problem, but the fact that I may have got it from partial vials uh, bothers me, and I'm interested as anyone else in finding out what the background of all of this is. So. Yeah, I don't think this story is over, to be honest, Tom. Uh, I think in actual fact it's just beginning because if this has been a concern of Mr. Dix and the lawyer in Ontario since 2015 and it looks like there's a lot of people, including Health Canada and possibly the province, just shrugging their shoulders, I think there's more yet to be told on this particular ordeal. But, you know, whether or not it's actually made people's eyes worse because of the way the doses were delivered, you know, because Mr. Dix made reference to uh, silicone and what it might be doing to your eye. Whether or not it even worked, period, even in part. So, again, I'm going to have to still try to rack my brain to try to figure this out a little further, but I'm not letting it go because I think there's more to it than meets the eye. Oh, pardon the pun. No, no, that's that. Great. So if I live long enough, maybe there'll be a lawsuit and uh, we'll have enough money to buy a beer or something. So thank you for taking the call. You have a good day, Patty. Same to you, Tom. All the best. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Man, that story. Uh, let's go to line number one and say good morning to the province's consumer advocate. That's Dennis Brown. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Can you hear me? Uh, not as clear as if you pick up the receiver. Here, I'll try again. Okay. Hello? Okay, let's go. Now it's even worse. Let's get him to see if we can get it back. So I'm trying to find the email that comes from uh, Mr. Brown earlier today. Oh, he's looking for a rehearing of the Newfoundland Power Mun Transformer issue. We did indeed speak about that with Dennis Brown recently. The fact of the matter is it's not part of the so-called ratepayers grid and under any control of us, if I remember that correctly. So let's see if we can rejoin uh, Mr. Brown on line one and get to the brass tacks here. Dennis Brown, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, Dennis here. Welcome. Uh, hi, I'm uh, calling in today about the Memorial University Transformer replacement and who pays for that. I had spoken about this some months ago. We had intervened when Newfoundland Power, um, who is uh, Memorial is their largest customer, wanted uh, ratepayers uh, uh, to pay for a replacement transformer. And we objected, and Hydro objected as well, and said, effectively, the customer should pay for this Memorial University. Anyway, the board looked at it all and uh, issued an order last week saying uh, it's the responsibility of, uh, of all uh, the customers to pay for this. 
Before uh, we go any further, Dennis, you and I have had this conversation, but for people who have not been privy to it, why is it not the ratepayers issue as you understand it? And the fact that Memorial is sort of isolated from this quote-unquote general grid. Okay, uh, Memorial is uh, is its own distributor. If uh, your listeners can do a visual uh, look up and down the parkway, you'll see buildings on either side of the parkway all along the university, including the health sciences complex. That's all part of the Memorial University campus. Uh, Memorial owns all the infrastructure, all the electricity infrastructure on both sides of its campus. And Newfoundland Power sends one bill to Memorial University, which includes the cost of the Health Sciences Complex, the Arts and Culture Center, all the residences, all the buildings on both sides of the campus. What Memorial does is it has all these buildings, or most of them metered. So uh, when uh, the bill comes to Memorial uh, from, uh, or comes to uh, Memorial University from Newfoundland Power, uh, Memorial then allocates whatever the meter cost is, like for the Health Sciences Complex or, or the uh, Arts and Culture Center or any of its other buildings. They figure it all out and say, you owe this and you owe that. And they send one amount back to uh, Newfoundland Power. There's one, the, the one payment system. So that's because Newfoundland, uh, Memorial University is effectively its own distribution company. The rest of the ratepayers have nothing to do with Memorial University. Memorial owns all that infrastructure. So here we're talking about a transformer that's probably been there since 1966 and had to be replaced, and no one is arguing that. All we're stating is that this is the obligation of Memorial University to pay for this transformer. It's $1.6 million. And we relied upon uh, the rules and regulations that are in place. And the rules and regulations state clearly that if if a um, special facility are required by any customer, uh, the cost for that special facility shall be borne by that customer. So the for whatever reason, the... PUB decided that this is not a special facility. Special facilities are not defined under the regulation, but it's obviously a special facility because it only deals with Memorial University, not for anyone else. So why should the rest of us have to pay for it? That's it. (laughs) Fair question. So what's the associated cost? Uh, the cost is $1.6 million. It's a cost, but it's also the principal, because, uh, as Hydro said in its opinion to the board, uh, the, the accepted practice in this jurisdiction, expenditures include, incurred on transmission costs serving only one customer should be recovered from that customer. That has always been the standard practice. But for reasons best known to itself, the board decided to depart from the standard practice and say all the costs should be borne by the ratepayers. And this is 
an anomaly. We haven't seen this inconsistency before. The consistent practice has been as Hydra stated. If you want a special transformer or anything and you're the only one using it, you're the one who has to pay. So uh, it's troubling. So we've gone back to the board, the PUB, and said, you need to re-examine this. And we gave all the reasons why they need to re-examine it. Now let's see what they do. Historically speaking, what's the likelihood of a re-hearing? Well, a re-hearing, it's just a paper hearing. It wasn't heard to begin with. The uh, Newfoundland Power, by the way, Newfoundland Power didn't even ask the university to pay for it. Newfoundland Power put the application in. That's what got our attention, and uh, put it in as uh, as asking for uh, all the ratepayers to pay for it. Now, why do you think Newfoundland Power would want to do that, Patty? Uh, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you why. They're they're doing that because that 1.6 million, if it's approved by the board, goes into Newfoundland Power's rate base. And the more money they put into their rate base, the greater their rate of return. So it's all self-serving. Okay, help, help me understand that a little further. If regardless of who pays for it, wouldn't it always end up in their rate base? No. How does that work? Well, all the facilities at Memorial University in particular are owned by the university, so they're not in the rate base. Furthermore, they're, uh, it's redundant. This is a second... Uh, transformer, the transformer that uh, that they're looking to replace. Memorial already has a transformer uh, on another subdivision, which is serving the university fine. No other customer has two transformers, so uh, it's uh, it's redundant anyway. So when the uh, the one transformer they're using now was. Uh, was paid for. It was not paid for by the ratepayers. It was paid for by the provincial government. And that transformer uh, deals with the distribution of electricity all throughout the university area, including the health sciences complex. So they paid for that transformer. Ratepayers didn't. The government did. And that is not in Newfoundland Power's rate base because they didn't pay for it. So uh, this particular transformer, uh, they, they had the gall, I think, to put it in uh, as an application that all the ratepayers should pay for. And uh, the PUB, for God knows what reason, agreed with them. Yeah, so obviously if Newfoundland Power has a mathematical calculation based on rate of return or guaranteed return, then that, I guess, speaks volume on that front. Uh, anything else we need to know about this one this morning, Dennis? Uh, no, uh, just uh, to inform the rate, pay, uh, the, the rate payers that we've gone back again to ask the board to look at it, and uh, we'll keep you informed on this issue, Patty. Appreciate the time this morning, Dennis. Thank you. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. As the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, so okay. If it is basically its own isolated grid and distributor, then what is the logic, or where is the logic beyond what Mr. Brown said there, uh, given what he thinks is Newfoundland Power's uh, motivation here? So that's a fair question. And we'll see whether or not there's a further examination of their own rules that are black and white as about who pays for what replacement and or improvement or upgrade. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we'll still have time for you. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. Well, a listener has called to tell us that there's a load of lumber on the highway just east of Charlottetown in the park, so beware in the region. Okay, final word this morning goes to line number one. Good morning, Sheila. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm doing great. Good. Little, uh, I had a little chuckle up your show this morning. I was listening to uh, Mayor Rose talk about the future is so bright for Stephenville and surrounding area. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering, like, what made me laugh is, like, you sounded like a child. Like, where is, they're saying there's so much money involved in this project, yet there's no social license given from the people on the port of port Peninsula. Uh, we don't understand what's going on with that, that they're buying up property, but yet there's no social license. And apparently it was only a project not even committed yet. Well, I suppose, I can't speak for Mayor Rose, but uh, the way I heard it, and I guess what it was intended, is that every if everything comes to pass, as has been suggested by whether it be Carl Diamond or John Risley or anybody else, that the economic upside would be what they say it is. Now, if that ever happens, remains to be seen. I have no earthly idea. No, apparently no one else does, except for the people that are, in, that are leaders, the government leaders or these groups that are in charge. Because apparently there's nothing given to the... Nothing being said to the residents so I, that's what i'm just wondering about like what more information does Ms. mayor rose have to enlighten us all to let us know what exactly is going on with this project well again i can't speak for him nor do i know if he knows any more about it than uh me or you or anybody else the way it sounds to me is that given the need for some sort of economic shot in the arm in the region, he sees these two potential projects as exactly that. So whether that be cockeyed optimism, whether he knows more than he's letting on, I don't know. But that's how it comes across to me, is he just thinks that if these things happen, it will be good, economically speaking, for the region. I understand, yes, it would be. But the thing is, if you have no social license for a, a peninsula, to house these windmills and these power lines and all the all the destruction that it's going to cause, we're not willing to give we're not willing to give that up. We're not going to give up that fight. What would constitute a social license? You know, just basic numbers. If you're talking about percentage of the population, thumbs up or down? Thumbs up, because I mean, right now we're eighty five percent, close to ninety percent against the windmills on the Port of Port Peninsula. We have documentation hmm. to prove that, but it seems like no one is listening and no one wants to see this proof. Well, I don't know how anybody proves something like that, but... Uh, but how, how can you not? If you have if you've had people sign a petition stating that they don't want these windmills on the peninsula and you have 85 to 90% average, well, then how do you accumulate... How can you say you have a social license and this can go ahead? I don't know, but if we had more time, we could examine that uh, important issue a little closer. But it's 30 seconds to 12, so we'll leave it at that. But you're always welcome, Sheila. Perfect. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, good show today. Whew. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.